Hey, Cecily Chris in the morning, bringing you another hour of home cooked karma. Coming at you through the miracle of modern technology, namely my trusty Ampex reel to reel. Why the out of body experience? Get serious, sports fans, it's bowling time. Your hometown keglers, the Sicily Sweethearts, defend their championship title next Saturday at the annual Borough of Arrowhead Mixed Doubles Invitational. We're practicing all week at Mary Jane's Lanes in Cantwell, so pack up the kids, grab your Brunswick, and come on down. I am not a big fan of bowling. Lee, Jay, do you guys like bowling? I love bowling. I'm not good at it, but I do like going to the bowling alley. I'm definitely not good at it either. Um, do I enjoy doing it? Not particularly. Yeah. I don't necessarily dislike it. Um, I like spending time with friends. Yeah. Eating some really greasy, like super greasy pizza or whatever they're serving. Uh, that's what I remember from being younger and going to the bowling alley. Yeah, I'm not actually... I think I agree with Jay here. I also don't really like bowling either. Like I don't really enjoy doing it, but I think it is the just hanging out in a bowling alley. I like the shoes, you know, I like the, the like slick floors and like keeping track of the score. Keeping track of the score is fun. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, Charles, what's your beef with, with bowling? I just don't like embarrassing myself, like, physically. (laughs) Like, I can hang out with my friends, like, in a bar and embarrass myself with my words. I don't need to, like, you know, (laughs) go through the motions to do that. Yeah, it is pretty bad. Um, I I actually went bowling recently um, for a friend's birthday. And pretty sure, like, the first ball I threw was a gutter ball. And it wasn't the only gutter ball I threw that day. There were also a lot of kids there, you know, because... Uh, you know, friends of our age have kids and also there are just kids bowling in, in, in other parties, but there was a kid in our party who would like laugh at me when I, when I hit the gutter ball. <laughs> but we were brutal. Cool. We were cool. We were friends. Like okay. we were, um, also I was trying to be, uh, uh, what's the word not supportive, but, um, encouraging to like, to him, if he would like miss something and mm-hmm. he was, he was funny anyway. Charles, what what are we doing here? What is this? Yeah, okay. So this is not a bowling podcast, but instead a bowling episode for Northern Exposure. We're the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. And we also have uh, our guest host, Jay. Hey. Now, Jay, you've been on the podcast many times before. I've lost count now. Yeah, I think, I mean, you got to be in the Five Timers Club by this point. Um, I think it's at least one episode each season of the show that y'all have done. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's probably right. Do you guys have anybody else in the five timers club? No, definitely not no. in the main feed though on the Patreon, <laughs> wow. there's probably some Patreon guests that may be approaching five times. Jay, have you ever, you don't think you've been on, have you been on the Patreon? I have not been on your, your Patreon. I haven't checked that out. I'll have to go check it out after this. Yeah. We'll have to invite you on, on Patreon at some point. We do like once a month. Uh, I guess this is a good time to plug it, but we have a Patreon at um, patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And once a month, we do a bonus episode, usually on something sort of Northern Exposure related. You know, we'll be like watching movies where stars of Northern Exposure have gone on to work in film or Mm. talk Mm. about topics or revisit episodes. Uh, if I wanted to email you guys, what could I do to, uh, what email address could I use to do that? <laughs> you can use Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. We love getting nice. fan mail. Um, any thoughts on the episode you may have, let us know, like the episode of Northern Exposure uh, or the podcast itself too. Let us know. And uh, also, you can reach us. We're semi active on Twitter at Northern Overpod. I'm glad that we are finally able 
to do like a plug for our socials and our Patreon at the end of the very last season of Nordic Exposure. <laughs> Like <laughs> way at the end of the podcast. I'm glad that we can finally figure it out now. We usually do plug it, but not at the very beginning, which is, I think that's generally the way you're supposed to do it. It's like, hey, before we start this episode, let's uh let's plug our socials, <laughs> all of our all of our important things that we need to plug. Cause you well, know you guys can can blaze your own trail, carve your own path. You can do it wherever in the podcast you want. If you want to wait 30 minutes and do it, do it. That's fine. We always dump it at the end in the credits. So if you stick around for like two hours, you'll here in the credits, all of this information <laughs> oh again. Uh, but yeah, we're in the main feed here. We're talking about Northern Exposure. Uh, we're the Northern Overexposure podcast, obviously. Um, today we're in season six of Northern Exposure, episode 19. It's called Balls. And um, um, guys, before we dive into this, uh, I, this I got a piece of news. Yes, and I don't know yes. if it's, it, it, y'all may have discussed in a previous episode. Uh, I, unfortunately, uh, embarrassingly, I haven't been keeping <laughs> up with your off. podcast as faithfully as I should have. So I haven't listened to the past couple episodes, but maybe you did cover it in an episode that's yet to be published. Um, what I'm looking at right now in front of me on my screen is I'm looking at um, Amazon Video yes. streaming service. And uh, I see Northern Exposure is now available. For the first time ever in the history of the universe, Northern Exposure is available digitally. This happened in Check that out. like July. And I think Okay, okay. It's definitely definitely North America. And also I believe a lot of our UK listeners have also um, mentioned that they can also get it, you know. Uh, digitally. And what's awesome about it is it's 1080. It's HD. Nice. And apparently it features, I, okay, I get, I've gotten mixed reports, but overwhelmingly it seems that most like 99% of the music in this uh, digital version on Amazon, I think it's also on iTunes, 99% of that music is the original broadcast music. So like, you know, awesome. on, on the DVDs, they replace that with uh like more like royalty free or easier to license songs. It's like totally replaced music um, on the show, but apparently uh, these new digital versions um, feature are, are pretty faithful to the to the broadcast. Uh, like what the music was there. Well, that's awesome. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. It was news to me a couple of weeks ago when I found out. Uh, I guess I'm behind the times a little bit. If you guys have no, known since is, July, I mean, but well, that's yeah. cool. You can. It's available now for purchase. You can dump your old uh, physical media collection <laughs> of DVDs, hand it off to the next guy, and uh, invest in the uh, the digital streaming service. Yeah, um, the beautiful ten Amazon Prime. Yeah, or Amazon Video. Yeah, that's cool. And then uh, to make sure that it never goes off, like off the air, you can record it onto these little things called <laughs> CDs, <laughs> and then uh, you can preserve it that way in case the streaming service takes it away from you. That's true. So that you can go back <laughs> to that ancient media. Well, no, if you buy this, you would own the digital copy of it, right? That is true. Yeah, if you purchased it. Yeah. yeah Instead of going to get into like, like a. What's it called? DRM? Are we going to get into a DRM discussion? What is DRM? Digital rights management. Oh, I mean. That, that might have not, to do yeah, with something else. I'm not, not, a, I'm not a lawyer not or, or know anything about copyright law, but. <laughs> I don't think well, you need to be a lawyer to know that. Maybe you, they should you just hang on to their DVD collections, Charles. If you're that, I mean, if yeah. you're that concerned about losing physical digital media, access, just hang on to your DVD collection. Physical media. Um, hey, I do want to talk about season six of Northern Exposure because. Obviously, one of the things about this podcast is, Charles, you're watching this show for the first time. I mean, we've been doing this for years now. We're in season six. So you're, you know, you're like a scholar at this point of Northern Exposure. Uh, but um, every episode that you watch is new to you. And for me, 
you know, I was a huge fan of the show. I've rewatched it a number of times, but Jay, I never, I mean, I watched season six once and I don't think I ever would put it on for a rewatch. And I was curious, did Same. you ever, yeah, did you ever go back? I never did. No, I think the, maybe it was 10 years ago or so that, that one summer that you and I were absolutely determined to finish it. Maybe yeah. it was more than 10 years ago. Uh, we watched, we made it through all the way. We got through season six and that was the last time I watched it. So it's been at least 10 years yeah. since I've seen any episode from season six and probably even season five. Probably the same for me, though. I did rewatch uh, season five uh, before because I and I do remember that having, and it does have some great episodes. And I will say, Jay, I was very nervous to do the podcast for season six, <laughs> but so far it's been pretty good. Um, we are in the territory now, I guess you may have suspected, Jay, because you watched this episode before mm-hmm. we recorded. We're in the territory where Joel is no longer with us. Right. Um, so we've got the, you know, the uh, Phil Capra and Michelle Capra. Right. Um, but I guess I just wanted to, I know it's probably been a while since you watched the show. General overarching thoughts. What did you think of this episode? It was, it was kind of like watching it for the first time again. So right. I, I had to recall, well, if I'm watching it for the first time, I guess I'm not recalling, but it, I had to relearn what the characters of Phil and Michelle Capper were like. Mm-hmm. Obviously I knew that uh, Joel Fleischman has now gone away. Have they, have they fully wrapped his storyline? Has that part happened? They have. Yeah, he's Though, he's gone. Yeah. Okay, so he's disappeared off into the woods, back into uh, fictional New York City, metaphorical, well, metaphysical, whatever. Well, there's right? there's many ways we could interpret that, Jay. I don't know. True. <laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe that's maybe I'll discuss it in a previous episode. Yeah, you could you can guys you can listen to our episode, the quest, where we talk all about the quest, all about what happens in that episode. Okay. Good episode. So what what we do know though is that the show only lasted for six seasons, and that this yeah. is episode nineteen. So we're five episodes away from the end, if I count it correctly. Four, um, four, well, four episodes well, this away. Would be, well, yeah, five. This would if be, you yeah. include this one, right, five. Right. So yeah, we're we're close to the end of the show. So are they are they wrapping up storylines? I guess that's what what I'm looking for. And what I remember was the main storyline that they're progressing. It seems, especially in this episode, it hits it pretty hard. Is the Chris Maggie thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and they address that very heavily in this episode. Ed seems to have developed some as well. Maurice seems kind of the same. Holly and Shelly don't really have major roles in this episode, but their storyline ha- has progressed. I think Shelly's probably already had her baby, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably already happened. Right. Um, but yeah, you can kind of tell, I guess, a little bit that the show is coming to some sort of conclusion. It's just, what are the wild cards of Phil and Michelle Capri? How are they going to end up? And honestly, I don't remember that. Yeah. If this ends, if this ends with Phil and Michelle getting a divorce, I'm going to disavow the show. <laughs> I'm going to be so mad. So when, remind me, when did they, when did they come in? Did they come in at the beginning of season six? Not quite at the beginning, but they, they come in before Rob Morrow leaves the show because what happens okay, so is Okay, so there's Joel, some overlap. Yeah, Joel ends up going like upriver. So he leaves Sicily, but he's like, Technically, he's still in Alaska. He's like, not really. Like, they still, he still will come back to Sicily once or twice, or people will go upriver to visit him. So he's just like, you know, Rob Morrow, the actor, is like, you know, I don't want to show up to set as often. So they're like, yeah, sure, you'll go off into this weird, um, what is it? Mananash is the name of the town mm-hmm. that they, uh, that they, that he lives in upriver. And so while he's gone, that's why they get Phil and Michelle in town. Okay. To kind of, because they need a doctor in town. So from, Phil's behavior, it kind of seemed like they were doing a direct replacement of Fleischman in the way he like reacts to things. 
And I don't know if it was like that when he was first introduced, but just the way he reacts to things now seem to be extreme, which Mm kind of reminds me of how Fleischman would would react to things that Maggie would say early on in the series or that uh, Elaine would say early on in the series, that he would just miss the point a little bit and his better half or the woman that he may be romantically interested in uh, would be upset with him. Um, So uh, that kind of vibe in the show is still there. There's still the conflict between a male and female, somewhat of a lead. Mm -hmm. Um, Although it kind of seems like the lead characters have shifted now to uh, the Maggie-Chris dynamic. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, and I mean, we kind of discussed this, Charles. A lot of the Capras so far, they keep, in multiple episodes, they keep hitting on this idea that they're kind of frustrated in Sicily, or they're having uh, difficulty adjusting, mm-hmm. um, which definitely is something that we've seen with Joel in the past. But I would say they're very similar, but there's there's enough dissimilarity, there's enough differences. It doesn't, like, Phil doesn't really feel like he's filling the role of Joel, but he is, he is, that yeah, he is, like, filling that gap somehow. Yeah, I didn't mean to completely equate the characters. Obviously, he's he's his own character. He's developed differently. Um, he's not the same as Joel. So I, it's kind of an unfair comparison, no, but no, no, I think no. it's sort of an inevitable comparison. Yeah, exactly. I think inevitably you're right. Like we have to, that's what it feels like. And they're, Charles, I think to our dismay, we were kind of like, I think you said it in a past episode, Charles, where you were like, are we still doing this? Like we're in season six and we're still talking about how they want to leave Sicily. Yeah. Yeah. So my gripe with it was like, we had an episode where it was basically like a very season one Joel plotline where it's saying like, I hate this town. I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) I want to leave. And to me, it's like, okay, that's fine. For like a season one thing, but like we are in season six. There is like seven episodes left. You're going to have to come real quick. (laughs) <laughs> to like a come to Jesus moment on this because this is not going to resolve the way that you want it to. And honestly, we we kind of got that this episode as well. And in fact, this episode kind of, it made me question what Phil the character was. Like I knew that like he wasn't as like uptight as Joel Fleischman and he had a wife and he was actually kind of excited to come to Sicily for the first time. But uh, with his argument with Michelle, I'm having a hard time placing like, all right, who, who exactly are you? Like, why, why am I, why am I as a viewer supposed to really empathize with you and love you as a character? Cause I'm having difficulty trying to see what makes you stand out uh, once that argument with Michelle came. Cause Mm -hmm. it was, I don't know. It just felt like needless conflict on something Mm -hmm. that I didn't Mm -hmm. really fully flesh out on the character. I didn't really understand where it was coming from because I don't know Phil for very long. I don't know what we're trying to get at other than Mm -hmm. to make a point that like, Hey, sometimes people are really happy in relationships and sometimes relationships suck and you get into fights. It's like, is that the statement we're just trying to make? And these two characters are fulfilling that role. The plot line, their plot line for Phil and Michelle felt very hollow. I I was so not uh, necessarily shallow because I mean, there's some depth to that. And if you, if you start picking apart it, picking it apart in terms of relationships, but it felt hollow. Like my, my heart wasn't into it. Like their hearts weren't, into it and i don't mean to dismiss the performance of the actors i think they did a reasonable job but it just felt like it was almost a forced argument right right yeah like if you don't if you feel like charles like what you're saying if you feel like you don't know who this character is it's really hard to like feel that pathos and empathize so yeah i mean like we've seen phil i I think he's been a pretty cool character so far but in situations like this if it feels like a little thin it's you're kind of just left wondering, like, what am I supposed to feel here? 
what is this supposed to mean? I, I like how you put it. Is it just like relationships are hard? I don't know. <laughs> well, before we like really tear into it, really get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, Lee, would you mind telling us who directed it and who wrote this episode? Okay, so the director of this episode was Scott Paulin. He's actually also an actor. Uh, he's an actor in a lot of stuff. Like if you look up this guy, to me, he's just a very character actor looking guy. I think his Wikipedia said he's probably most famous for playing Deke Slayton in The Right Stuff. Have you guys seen that film, The Right Stuff, about like the astronauts? Why does that sound so familiar to me? Who directed that? Um, trying to remember his name, but I just watched, it's the guy who did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like this 1970s one. But if you could find that for me, uh, let me know. But, oh, uh, it's Philip Kaufman. Philip Kaufman. Yeah, he did uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been mentioned on the show before because I think Maurice brings it up because it's an astronaut. It's a movie about astronauts. I actually haven't seen it either, but it's high on my list right now. So he's in that. He's also, he's an actor in an episode of Northern Exposure, a previous episode, uh, season four, episode 18, Northern Lights. I don't know if either of you would recall it, but J uh, Charles, maybe since you've watched it more recently, um, it's the episode where this like homeless man comes in through town. There's a plot line like that. And he turns out he's like an army vet. Oh and it's also, yeah. It's also the, also the episode where Joel, like um, he boycotts, um, he uh, protests sort of like he doesn't get his vacation or something like that. So he protests and he's like, I'm, I'm quitting. Like, I'm going to just, I guess I'll just live on the street like a homeless person or something. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. He went on strike. Yeah. He went on strike. And also the town was so mean to him. It's like, what the hell, man? This is Joel, your doctor, but they're anyway. So um Scott Pollan, the director of this episode, played this uh homeless army vet in that previous episode. Um the writer of this episode was Jeff Malvoin. He has written many episodes of Northern Exposure. He actually wrote the last one that we just talked about, um, Little Italy. And he will return in uh the final episode, the finale, as one of the writers. Finally, the air date was April 6th, 1995. Okay, well, we have three plot lines that we outlined through here. We have Chris and Maggie, we have Ed and Maurice, and we have Phil and Michelle. So which one do we want to go through first? Jay, do you have a preference? I think we should start with um, with Phil and Michelle. All right. Uh, because I feel like that's, in my opinion, the least invested I've felt in any of the three plot, <laughs> okay. uh, plot lines. And I think we should finish on Chris and Maggie. All right, yeah. Save All the right. Big, that for the big finale there. Yeah. Uh, well, I, we kind of talked about it before. This is an, this is sort of a bowling episode. This is not necessarily Phil and Michelle, but maybe we can talk about this scene quickly because it sort of sets us up. Early in the episode, I believe it's at, right, after the, um, right after the theme music, um, Maurice is in K-Bear and he like flips a switch and it's this pre-recorded tape that Chris has made for his morning show to broadcast over K-Bear. And he basically gives us this intro of like, uh, he's been very busy with uh, bowling and stuff, so he had to make this tape ahead of time. We learned that Sicily has a bowling team called the Sicily Sweethearts, and there's something called the Annual Borough of Arrowhead County Mixed Doubles Invitational. And they're going to try their best to win, I guess. And there's a cute little thing where like Maurice is leaving K-Bear and he like flips a sign on the door that says, uh, gone bowling. So we're, 
we're we're in a bowling episode and uh we next we jump into a scene um in a bowling alley uh where we see all the various characters and there's you know there's definitely some Chris and Maggie stuff that we can set up later for uh when we talk about that later in the episode but if we want to just focus on Michelle and Phil we get to see that Michelle is really good at bowling. She's like a natural. She's apparently, I think Walt says she made four strikes in a row or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. She's killing it right there. And she makes a small little statement to Phil. They talk to each other when they're getting their balls and Phil has to get a new one because the old one is causing him some blisters. He, there's like small signs that he's not enjoying his time here, but it's not outright stated. And Michelle says, Hey, thanks for taking me out here. I think that we really needed this. And at this point in the episode, I was like, oh, this is going to be like a really sweet episode. This is like, you know, they're having an outing. This yeah. is going to be great. So did they discuss this in the previous episode that they were planning to do something together, that they needed to do something no. together as a couple? No. So it's not really set up. You're just sort of thrown into the plot with yeah. that. Okay. Okay. Um, also, does Phil bowl in the first scene or does he just talk about the blisters and the bowling balls? I don't know if we see him bowling, but he's like hanging out with Ruthann and we just, I don't think we see him bowling. We just get the sense that he's like, eh, like he's just kind of along for the ride. He's, it almost feels like he's like coping with it. He's like, eh, okay, yeah. like this is fine. And we see that Michelle is much better than he is, or we get the sense that she's way better than him. So, you know, you might think like, oh, is he jealous? Is there like a jealousy thing going on? But I don't necessarily think that's what's happening. Uh, though I guess it could be read that way. I think so. I think it could be read as, okay. as jealousy. Maybe he wants to contribute to the team, but he can't do it in, in that way. Feels inferior. And he's, he's disappointed. Maybe he does feel a little bit inferior in the relationship at the time. Uh, he, he hasn't seen the point. I think most importantly, he hasn't seen the point that Michelle just wants to do it together. Right. Yeah. She just wants to have something fun to, to hang out with him. And Right. Mm-hmm. There are a number of deleted scenes in this uh, episode on the on the DVD. There's four of them, and they're all pertaining to this plot line. So this plot line kind of got picked apart on the cutting room floor. One of them would come up pretty early in the episode where I think it's in the bowling alley, and we just get the feeling that Phil is kind of not taking bowling so seriously. He's kind of like, it feels like it's a goof to him. Later, there's another deleted scene when um, Michelle is sewing um, their name patches onto their uh, their bowling uniforms, and um, Phil just really la- like he out he has like an outburst of laughter at the idea of like wearing the uniforms. He thinks it's goofy. There's a couple more scenes that we I, I can bring up these deleted scenes as we get further in the plot line, but I thought that was interesting. You know, that's a that's a different angle to look at it, but maybe Phil you know, not, not showing respect or appreciation for this sport that something that Michelle is really good at. He thinks is like a uh, child's play or something stupid. But like, I'm sorry, I'm skipping like way ahead of this, but like, <laughs> why? Like, what is his motivation for doing it? Surely it has to come from somewhere. It cannot just be like a, a very simple mechanism of like, Oh, he's just not seeing eye to eye with Michelle on how important this is to her. Like, is that really as deep as it goes? I mean, maybe. Yeah. And to me, that's that's kind of why the plot line feels hollow is because it just seems like he's getting mad because he's not good at something and not recognizing that it's not about being good or bad at the thing. Maybe he's putting too much pressure on himself and, and that's what triggers him. 
they don't really go into any kind of detail if he has some sort of deep-seated hatred for bowling or anything to deal with bowling in his past. It just feels like it's just a surface-level immature reaction of, hey, I'm not good at this thing. I'm not enjoying my time. I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Right. And okay, so like we kind of get that set up in the very next scene involving them, which is them riding back home on the bus. And everyone's having a great time. And Walt is talking with Michelle. And he says, like, hey, where did you learn to bowl like this? This is incredible. And she says, oh, I, you know, I was doing it in high school all the time. In fact, I used to do it with my old boyfriend. You know, we used to love going bowling. And Phil's like, wait, what? Like, I didn't I didn't know about this. <laughs> and, and she's like, yeah, you know, I never told you. But yeah, I, I did it with him. So at this stage, you're kind of thinking, like, it's a weak reason. And like it's still a reason he's like oh, yeah. okay phil feels like insecure because there's you know michelle was with other people before him i can buy that reasoning yeah it's not great but like yeah it's something i mean it seems like it's not the basis of a, a strong relationship though i mean if he went to he's gone they've gone through the length in their relationship to get to the point where they want to get married and he's still insecure about her past relationships you know that that's a red flag to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's but, not. <laughs> uh, it's not a good sign. I think the I think his lack of skill in bowling probably is the initial trigger point. But then that bus ride back where he finds out that Michelle's old boyfriend and her used to go bowling all the time. I think that just makes the problem worse in his mind, and mm-hmm. maybe he's somehow jealous of her past boyfriend from before they were married and together, and he 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 then becomes consumed by that in a somewhat immature way. Yeah. No, I think that's a good read on it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's never really like honed in on, but I think, I think jealousy is the main thing. It's like, he's jealous of the high school boyfriend, but also jealous that she's good and he's bad at this, but it's kind of, uh, it's, it feels like so kind of vague and cloudy because yeah, it's, it's like, I think like you were saying, Charles, like at the end, you're just kind of like, wait, what is, we never really learn what, what exactly is, Phil, is Phil's problem here? Guess it's the jealousy. Yeah, I, I guess I guess that's it. And we're gonna see it. We're gonna really see it on full on display at the very next scene with them. I think you gotta get like ten minutes down the episode till we see this. But it's them back in their home, and Michelle's got the uniform on. It's this like snazzy blue standard bowling outfit, very bright, pops right off the screen. And Phil is still dressed in his regular dungarees and. They're having a conversation about going bowling, trying to have more fun, and Phil lays it on Michelle and says, you know, those bowling shoes, I'm just, yeah, I feel like clown shoes. They come in like a variety of colors, <laughs> you know, the, it's rubberized at the bottom. I feel so silly wearing them. I, I don't, I don't really want to do it. And Michelle says, no, come on, you got to be, it's, it's not the bowling shoes. Just be honest <laughs> with me. Like, you just don't want to do bowling. Phil digs down. He's like, no, it's like, it, it, that's, you know, it's, it's definitely that. It's definitely the shoes. He says, um, the worst part is you have to put your feet in these things that have been rented out continuously since the Eisenhower administration. Have you ever seen a new pair of bowling shoes? I don't think they even exist. But yeah, he keeps going on about the shoes. <laughs> He's probably right. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. True. Not that it's a good reason not to bowl yeah. in this scenario, but it's a good point. Something I didn't really think about but it's obvious because it's it's mentioned in the first scene about the bowling. But this is doubles bowling where you have to pick out a teammate. And we see this more in the Maggie and Chris plot line, like how they pair each other up. So like at first I'm like, oh, Phil doesn't really want to bowl. He's like, I don't want to bowl, but I believe in you. Like you should continue bowling. Like you're good at this. But by Phil 
by him like excluding himself from this, he's kind of forcing Michelle to like find another partner. And that's kind of uncomfortable too. It's like, no, Michelle wants, Michelle doesn't care if Phil is bad. She just wants to be on his team, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, Phil finally admits after he gets broken down further by Michelle to say like, <laughs> okay, it is bowling. It's, it's the act of it. He, lo- he feels it's silly and he, he just doesn't groove with it. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want Michelle to do it. And that's kind of his defense. It's not a great defense, but that's what he says. And Michelle storms out and she gets in the car. And this gets into like maybe one of the most unpleasant things in Northern Exposure that I've seen in a pretty long time, which is Phil demanding that she not drive away in a very mm-hmm. forceful, mm. ugly manner. I yeah. did not. It, it I felt did not petty like and childish. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was thinking to myself, I was like, this has got to be like. Uh, did they like this when they were going to the it, cutting room floor? They were like, "Oh, this is great." Yeah. No. In my mind, it's it's unexpected for for Phil to behave in that way because I mean, yeah. he's a doctor, he's well educated. Uh, I would expect him to have some sort of emotional maturity, especially if he's gone to the point where he's gotten married. And, and I could be wrong, but it just seems like my expectation for a character that should be that educated probably shouldn't be behaving that way. They probably should be able to take a step back and evaluate and say, hey, what's really going on in this situation? Let me talk it through. Let me reason it through. But instead, he's just acting like a petty child. He's not getting what he wants, which is to not end up with a fight with Michelle. I, I guess that's what he wants. And, and the way he's reacting to it is is trying to force her to stay. Yeah, I think we can even go so far as to say that this is out of line for the tone of the show, like for Northern Exposure. Like, like uh, yeah, it just feels a little nasty. I guess if there's one thing I can uh, praise in this scene is the uh, there's a really nice Perrier, like you know he's got that Perrier bottle or Perrier, mm-hmm. however you want to say it. He slams it down on the counter and like the water shoots up like a geyser out of the bottle. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty awesome. <laughs> that and is just, pretty like, sweet. The energy, you know, it is a little over the top, but he's like yelling and screaming. But yeah, as you say, Charles, it kind of leaves a nasty feeling in your uh, in your gut. Yeah, I, I feel like if, like in standard Northern Exposure feel, what I imagine would happen is that like he would do this thing you were talking about. He would lay down the bottle. You get this pretty cool imagery of the water exploding. <laughs> Maybe there's even some symbolism behind it. And then she closes the door and it, we would probably get like a single of him reacting and then cut. Yeah. Like that's – I feel like that's like the Northern Exposure way of handling things. Instead of actually going through with the, the whole car part of the Yeah, scene. yeah. I was I – was, yeah, yeah. I was flabbergasted when they, the camera yeah. went outside. I was like, wait, are they <laughs> – It feels like this? there's too much follow through. Yeah. yeah. Not to – Typical also, Northern Exposure code. Also, I mean, uh, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, also, it's kind of deflates a little the energy because when we cut to the final shot in the scene, it's like the, the car driving away mm-hmm. and it's not moving very fast because it's like driving through snow. Well, so and like, she's in the middle of the night. There's a yeah. pond right by. She didn't want to run into it. So it just like it, it kind of, I don't know, but sorry, go ahead. I want to do a thought experiment here. If, <laughs> if this were a scene instead of Phil and Michelle Capra, if this were a scene between Joel and Maggie whether they were in a relationship together at the time or not, how would this play out? I mean, they would Maggie be... Maggie wanted to do a thing and, and Joel was going along with it and then he didn't feel like doing it. You know, how, how, would, how would they play it out? It would be like all bark and no bite. Like they would be like yapping at each other a bunch and then they would probably like both turn away from each other and storm off. Or like yeah. it would cut away, or they would just like start kissing or whatever, you know, like in, a, <laughs> in spring break when they're like yelling. I definitely at each think other. they would cut away. Yeah, um, but they would. One of them would storm off, and if it was Fleischman's house, then yeah, Maggie would be the one to storm off and then call him <laughs> arrogant and selfish and whatever. 
but uh, it would it wouldn't be played out nearly the same as what we're seeing here. And and you're right, it's atypical. I didn't think about that from it's the little, little trashy feeling. This yeah. is yeah. I, I cannot imagine Joel even going through that much possessiveness. Even though like we've seen Joel do some pretty petty stuff, mm-hmm. not nearly to this level. I'm I'm trying to picture it in my mind. The only character that would even come close to pulling this off is Hollis. Uh, the reason I picked Holling is because oh. I, he has like this deep on like he didn't go to therapy. He didn't like process this correctly because <laughs> uh-huh. you know, he's, he's older. They didn't have that back then. Yeah. And, like I feel like he has that. He would just lose his temper. And we saw that last episode actually. Hmm. So the very last episode oh. that we actually just saw yeah. Holling had a huge temper tantrum and like punched a moose. But I think we also commented that that also felt a little out of character. Exactly. Not like yeah, crazy, it did feel out of character. Right. Right. But like, if we're putting that into right. the, the lore yeah. of Northern it's Exposure. It's canon. It's canon. Yeah, it's yeah. canon. <laughs> <laughs> then we know that he's capable of such anger, and which is why I thought it's like, maybe hauling at his deepest nadir of his life against <laughs> Shelly, and surely he would get his comeuppance. Like, this is not okay. Uh, the reason I said Maurice is because because you said Petty, and that's like the very yeah. first character that jumps to my mind is Maurice Definitely. Uh, getting mad at something petty and trivial and, and whatnot. But your your point about hauling and and the relationship part of this, because obviously Maurice hasn't been in a long term relationship that we've seen in the show. I mean, I suppose there's the Barber plot line, but mm-hmm. uh, I guess y'all have covered that in some detail in the past. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're right. Uh, it's it's unexpected that Holling might behave that way, but I think he could. I could see that. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, well, let's yeah. move on to the next scene, which does have hauling. And, and it's uh, Phil is like alone in the brick. He just asks for a cup of coffee. And hauling's kind of like um, chatting with them. You know, they, they're kind of talking around it. But it's like, yeah, you know, Michelle's staying upstairs in the brick. Um, and Phil's like, oh, yeah, she'll be she'll be coming home soon, like before you know it. And Holling's like, uh, well, uh, she rented the room for the week, yeah, for the whole week. <laughs> yeah. Um, and th- this is actually when I kind of laughed at this next part, but, um, Phil's like, she didn't say anything, did she? <laughs> and, uh, Holling's like, nope. And then he says, oh, well, she did ask if the meals come with the room. And then there's this really long pause. Uh, that's just like perfect. And Holling's like, they don't. <laughs> like the, no no meals <laughs> with the rooms. That, the pause, the dramatic timing was so good. Yes, it was. So Phil's starting to despair. He thinks now, okay, it's a real thing. It's a real fight. Am I losing her? I mean, I get it. Some couples fight, but has has have Phil and Michelle gone through this before that we've seen? I I don't remember. Holling suggests him. Well, you should probably go talk. To, or actually, Phil's like, I should probably go talk to her, huh? And Holling says, Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's like it's kind of falling apart. We also get a little, you know, a little sample of like the seriousness of this because Hayden, Hayden Keys is there and he's like, I just wanted to know, are you guys still going to be playing in the tournament? Because obviously, like the Sicily sweethearts, they need Michelle. She's like, she's going to take them to the top as a uh, Walt. Says. I got a, I got a deep cut question okay. here. Mm-hmm. Hayden. Yes. And he has uh, his partner, I think is Marsha, if I remember right which I think is his wife, mm. is that the same couple who in maybe season one um, where the wife stabbed the husband in the back? It's not. It's um, not? Because okay. it's a different guy. I okay. don't know that we see 
I don't know that we, we may, yeah, actually we probably do see Hayden's partner at some point. Cause there's like a scene where Hayden like yeah. hurt his back or his neck and they don't have an ambulance. So they just like lift him into the back of a pickup truck and <laughs> Phil or Joel or like, he got to tell him like this or that. And he's talking with a woman. So we probably do. There's another episode too, Charles, if you will remember where um, it's called eye of the beholder where Ed is like trying to spy on Hayden as like a private eye to see because Hayden is doing some like uh, insurance fraud stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I said in that episode, but I think he's like, we understand that he's like dancing with his, uh, with his partner. So she is a character, but I'm trying to remember if we see her. Uh, but no, okay, sorry. But Hayden isn't the person that gets yeah. stabbed, but apparently sure. Hayden is a, is a, a minor character that's appeared several times. So yeah, he's, yeah. go ahead, Charles. Yeah. I was just going to say he has appeared multiple times and, it's got to be season six, right? That we started seeing him. Was it was probably season, season five, five or yeah, season five and six? I oh think. no, no, you're right, you're right. He, yeah, he did appear in season five. Uh, to this day, I'm still questioning his role in the town. He's typically like the person who does like dirty jobs. Like he's a common thief. He's just a he's just like a bad he's a, person. Yeah, he's a bad person. <laughs> Anytime commits, anything bad happens, it's always. But he's kind of lovable because he's so big and like that big beard and. Just that big face. Um, you kind of love love that he's there, even though he gets into trouble all the time. Well, like almost every line that comes out of his mouth is like to someone else's <laughs> detriment. Get <laughs> <laughs> out that like, bad we, apple, I guess. Yeah, well, we just had an episode where uh, Maggie bought a movie theater, Jay. Uh, she's like renovating the Sicily Theater and mm-hmm. the film doesn't go so well. They forget to change out the, the, the what is that, the canister? The real Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, the, the real canister. Real. And as soon as it happens, like not even one second, like as soon as that thing goes a little bit haywire, Hayden turns around and just starts booing at the projection <laughs> booth. <laughs> like, he also wow. comes pretty close to an F-bomb. Like he's like, what yeah, the really? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um I'm surprised that they went there. I love Hayden though. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. kind of ridiculous, but I love him. Anyway, uh, yeah. That was a deep dive off into a minor character. <laughs> yeah. Well, so back to back to Phil in the brick. Yeah, so Phil's going to go talk to Michelle. He goes upstairs, knocks on the door up there. Michelle doesn't want to talk, but he asks if she would at least like open the door. And uh she does and he's got a gift for her. It's a new bowling ball. He like went and got it. He he purchased it for her. He had to like drive out of town. He had to actually he had to use like a a snowplow to drive all the way to do it and he's explaining this to her. And uh, all the trouble he went through because this meant so much to him, I guess, is what he's trying to prove. Um, But Michelle says to him, this is what we do, isn't it? We, like, get mad at each other, then we buy each other bowling balls. And Phil's like, this is the first bowling ball I've bought you, Michelle, ever. Like, this, what are you talking about? And he completely misses the point. Right, exactly. She says, there you go again, missing the point. Yeah, it's not going so hot with them. Phil is asking her to go to bowling practice but she's not in any mood to bowl. So we're kind of um, kind of at a standstill here. So is this the first episode where we've seen um, a couple's fight between these two? Or any uh, sort of tension like that at all? Well, Charles, I know that they've definitely had a lot of anxiety about, like, what are they going to do here? Like, what are we going to do with our, like, we've just ruined our lives. But is this the, is this the first time they we've had, fought? They had, like, a disagreement over... Uh, Marilyn's friends staying over at their oh, place. Oh, yes, yes. But they, like, never got this. That one, one endeared yeah. them because that one was more like, 
how are we going to get through this? And mm-hmm. I want to say it was Phil that champions the thought of like, we're going to get through if we're like together mm-hmm. at the end. Like they had disagreements on how to settle it throughout the episode, mm-hmm. but it never got to this level of nastiness or like not, I guess nastiness isn't a word, just this level of disagreement. Yeah. It never um, got this far. That, yeah. That one you, you saw, you understood each other's point of view and I was on board with that. If I remember correctly, I was I do remember liking it. Yeah, that was a good that was a good episode. So do you think it's do you think it's the pressure of uh their new environment that's finally getting to them and causing one of them to snap in one way or their relationship to snap in one way? Honestly, I mean maybe that's what the show's trying to do, but honestly, I feel like I feel like the show keeps trying to be like, oh yeah, they they're having trouble adjusting, but I don't know, they're gonna be fine. Yeah, I, the the generous reading of what you're trying to you're trying to provide, Jay, is like I would want it to be that way. But honestly, yeah. this this it is really just came out of left field, in my opinion. It's I never, agree. Yeah, I agree. This is a very it did come out one. of left field. It doesn't feel characteristic for these two characters, uh, regardless of how little I remember about them. It just feels off, um, like like this wouldn't really happen. And to me, that's why I didn't really buy into this this plot line too mm-hmm. much. Um, and maybe. Maybe they are just simply trying to represent that there's some tension in this couple because they're in this new environment together um, and they're figuring it out. Yeah, I mean, kind of at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about like, is this the direction that they're aiming for? Like as the show comes to a close, actually, it's been a couple days since I watched this episodes and I'm looking at my notes. I mean, we'll get there by the end of this plot line, but like, it seems like they sort of patch things up a little bit, but it's still tense. Like, I don't know if... Um, by the end of this episode, do you think Michelle is still staying in this room at the brick? Kind of, kind of hard to say. I don't. Th- well, you're right. It is kind of hard to say because, well, if we fast forward to <laughs> yeah. the bus ride back, well, if we fast forward several scenes to the bus ride back at the end of the show, they still seem sort of stiff with each other on mm-hmm. the bus ride. They're they're sitting next to each other, if I remember right, but they're they don't seem friendly with each other. So maybe she goes back. Yeah, I guess we'll get there um, because I have a little more. There's like another deleted scene that could add to this. But I guess just to quickly say, by the end of this episode, they're back together as a bowling team. But does that mean they're back together as in like married couple living together? We can can discuss that once we get to the end of the plot line. But before we go that far, let's just go to the next scene. It's with Phil again at the brick. He's drinking alone and Walt comes to join him. And he's total despair, full of despair here. He says, like, got no wife, no money, no future. And why? Because of bowling. I've lost my entire life to the sport of imbeciles. Like, I guess he's supposed to be drunk and raging at at the sport of bowling. I I didn't take that as him being drunk. Yeah. I don't know what what is. What is it? It just seems, again, I think this is an example of Phil, the character, being petty and being, if I'm being honest, a little shallow. Because... I mean, it seems unexpected to me for him to jump to that conclusion that she's truly considering leaving him and that he's losing everything after one little fight about bowling. And so it, it, his behavior seems petty, but he's also making a petty thing into something that I don't think it is. I, I don't think that's why Michelle's reacting the way she is. I think she just needs a little time to deal with him being petty and then they'll they'll come back together, maybe. But it just, again, this is an example of it, it felt like it was a forced conflict between the two. Yeah, I found it strange 
that he would jump to divorce so immediately. They, they've been married for a number of years. Like, it's not like they just got married right here. They have been through turmoil. They understand each other's foibles. I, like, for him to be like, all right, like, this is it. Like, she's going to divorce. She's going to leave me. I'm like, that doesn't sound realistic at all, man. Like, this whole thing doesn't feel very right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I did want to say before we leave this scene, Walt is like, I know how you feel, man. I fell through, like he was talking about, he went to go check some trap lines and he like fell through the ice. The other, like the other day he was just walking around, he fell through the ice and nearly froze to death. And then Phil's like, I guess waiting for the punchline. He's like, wait, no, that's not the same thing. <laughs> and, and Walt's like, it isn't? Are you sure? And there's ways you could connect that, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, they're they're kind of, they're just talking about two Two different things here, I guess. Okay. Um, deep analysis of that. Maybe yeah. maybe Phil, not Phil, maybe Walt does expect the audience to draw some sort of Sicilian conclusion about the symbolism of him falling through well, the can, ice and almost freezing to death with, with Phil's predicament. Maybe maybe Walt's setting that up for the audience to say, hey, here's the old Northern exposure you used to know, and <laughs> but wait, here's Phil completely turning it on his head. Uh, I yeah. don't know. Well, it's you could think of it as like you fall into a hole, but you get out of it. You know, like that's yeah. so that's maybe that's what we can take from Walt's anecdote. Maybe so. I mean, I mean that's the that's the obvious comparison, I think. Yeah. But Phil just Phil just does not get that. He misses the point. And maybe that's another way to show that Phil isn't a really emotionally developed <laughs> or emotionally mature person. Not yet. He he's got he's got some room to grow, hopefully. Yeah. Um, well, in the next scene, Phil is um, in his office, like looking at something under the microscope, and he's got the radio on. Chris is on the radio, and he announces that Phil and Michelle are no longer competing in the tournament. We see that, you know, Phil has got his mind on other things. Like, he's very focused on the radio broadcast, and he's, like, trying to drop either some, like, drip some um, dye or some blood through, like, a dropper into... Um, the micro microscope plate order slide. He misses and it like hits his pants leg. He's just like not able to focus on work. Um, we get a quick shot of the bus. Just wanted to say, I don't know why it was put in this, this, I guess it's the buses arriving in town to pick up the bowlers. Um, and so he's like running to Michelle's room to be like, Hey, we got to go bowl. Like right now the bus is like coming to pick us all up. But something I noticed about that shot of the bus it says um, 1994 on it. Mm-hmm. Did you guys notice that? Is that oh, is they were it does because they, they were champions last year? Is that what it means? Because it says um, Sicily Sweethearts Mixed Doubles Champs 1994, and the number was like wait, what over. year was the episode released? 95. The episode was released in 95. Hmm. I mean, it's possible it was shot in 94, but it was released in April of 95. So I feel like they would have shot it. You think like for continuity or, or something based on the time that it air, that that would be the main timeline of the show? No. Or should be the main timeline of the show? It should say 95, unless the sign is like, oh, we were champions last year because it says champs. So maybe they won it yeah. last year. That could well, be it. Well, uh, one thing you can tell about the sign is the four looks like somebody taped over it <laughs> and put a four there, and it used to say 1993, presumably, before yeah. that. So maybe they just got lazy and forgot to change the sign to say nineteen. That could also be it. Like in the in the story, in the world in the world of the story, you know, they were like someone was too lazy somebody, to, to paint it. Yeah. yeah, somebody said, Oh, that's good enough. They know we're the bowling team. Yeah. Hang on. Uh is it was it just me? Was it not like listening to the right thing? Was but was that bus just blaring rap music? <laughs> I'd have to it go was. back. I'd have to go back and in listen. the audio that's that awesome. I heard on the DVDs it was. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Like, is that how they're rolling up to the bowling alley? Just like blowing Hell like yeah. rap in there? Uh, What's I don't know, man. I thought it was like the strangest music choice. I was like, what, awesome. is, what is happening? I don't think Moose Chick has very much for this episode as far as uh, the music, but let me just check real fast. Yeah, it just says bowling rap song, question mark. The bus <laughs> leaves for bowling. So it was a rap song. Well, I did want to talk about what Michelle is reading when Phil comes to get her. She's got a book um, very clearly like in front of the camera that uh, the title is Interior Castle. Have you guys heard of this book? No, I've never no, heard of it. Never heard of it. It was a book written by a 16th century nun named Teresa of Avila. And I was just looking on the Wikipedia some scholars say that Descartes may have lifted some of his most influential ideas from the writings in Interior Castle. It's just a lot about uh, spiritual growth and like thinking of your soul as this interior castle with seven chambers or seven spires or something like that. And um, just, you know, kind of like a self-help kind of maybe maybe Michelle is reading it in that vein of self-help. But it's interesting because there is actually a deleted scene probably would occur before this scene if it were in the episode. Uh, Shelly is changing the sheets out for Michelle because she's staying in that room. And they talk about like, oh, it's kind of, it's normal for couples to take some time apart. You know, Shelly and Holling have done it many times in the past. We get an interesting little uh, tidbit about Michelle. She says um, when she was a little girl, she used to dream of being a nun. And she thinks about it and she's like, yeah, I think I could like, I think I would enjoy that type of life. She's like imagining not being married, living a solitary life, and now she's reading Interior Castle. That could have went in a very interesting direction. Mm-hmm. I think if they had kept that scene in and like dumped this next scene that we're just about to talk about, that could go into something very interesting that like I don't think we've ever I don't think we've ever tapped into in Northern Exposure. Uh, sadly, that is not the case. What does happen is that we're going to get to the scene of Phil going to Michelle's room in an urgent manner because, hey, they got to go make it to the bowling tournament. Phil is finally taking him bowling. He says, look, we don't have to, like, agree with each other. Like, uh, plenty of famous teams never agreed with each other. Uh, he lists some examples of various sports teams and says, like, you know, this isn't about us. This is about the Sicily bowling team. We need to be there for them. And Michelle buys it. She's like, I'll go get the hammer. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do this. But she's still, she's still disappointed. It's not concluded because he still doesn't get it. He thinks that, oh yeah, she just wants to be part of the community and help the team, regardless of if they win or not, but you know, be there to support the team and participate. But that's not it at all. I think she just wanted to bowl with him and have a thing to do together. And he's still missing it. It feels like. Right, yeah, right, unless exactly. I completely misreading what it seems like she wants, but you know, from the outside, it seems like he's still come up with the shallow answer to what Michelle wants. Yeah, I think you're right. No, I think that's a great one. Yeah, I think that's a great read. Well, they do join back into the doubles, you know, into the game, and so Phil and Michelle are a team again. The next scene we see is um, Phil. Like I think it starts with it's like, oh, Phil just bowled like a 106. That's his best game so far, which actually I think, for the record, is. Better than I bolt, like most recently. I think it's better than me too. <laughs> like I definitely did not crest a hundred. I don't think, but we get into the situation where it's like it all rides on Michelle. Like if you know now, you know they're this many points behind the other team. I can't even remember who they're playing against, but um, you know Michelle's got to win for them to uh, for them to take the tournament. 
And uh, Phil, we can see, is sort of like working up the nerve to say something as Michelle is getting ready to like pick up the ball and go to the lane. And he like rushes up to her and he's like, what do you basically like, you know, what do you think about coming home now? Like, are, are you ready? Um, and she says, like, I, I still need some time, Phil. Also, I was just like, man, couldn't you like pick a better time to do this? Like, Absolutely. He's about to try to win it for the town. Complete wrong moment, oh. misread the situation. I think it's just another example of how emotionally immature <laughs> Phil is and how self-centered he is. Because, I mean, in that moment, that's not where your mind should be. You know what she's trying to do. You know she's trying to, to clinch the tournament for the team. And regardless of if you care if they win or not, I mean, still, just respect that. And and wait until she's done to ask that question. Oh, yeah, save it for the, the bus ride home. Right. That would have been perfect. Save it for the bus ride home. Everything would be happy and fine, you know, but uh, it's not what he chooses. Uh, this is something I wanted to talk about very briefly on the design of bowling ball rinks. So, you know how there's like, there's the benches where the people watch and then there's like a little bit of space and then there's like that line of demarcation that you can't pass. It's where you like mm-hmm. throw the bowling ball. I know that there's like a little bit of room because the bowler is supposed to take the time to like slide a little bit, gain some momentum so you can throw the ball down the lane. Right. You start five or six steps back and depending on what foot you start with or whatever, it determines the number of steps and throw your leg out and whatnot. Right, right. But then it occurs to me watching this episode that like, you know, that space that they give between the bowler and the people on the bench, it affords them the opportunity to like turn around in taking their reaction and then like they have to walk back like there's like five or six steps so you you can't just immediately just sit down you got to like take in the reaction of your fellow peers yeah and then mm-hmm. you walk back and i was like i wonder if that's like a purposeful design by bowling because <laughs> otherwise you don't have any other reaction to it <laughs> that's fine i guess it's sort of by necessity unless yeah. you had like a single lane if you only had one lane in the alley then you could put the chairs and the seating next to the lane but it just makes more sense if you have multiple lanes, you're going to put it on the very end like that. So it's sort of by necessity, you end up with a design where the player is forced to turn and confront the reactions of their like audience. their friends yeah. or enemies yeah. or, or partner or whatever. And uh, I was thinking this because like everyone's having a great time whenever they turn around in this episode. Like they're all warm. And I want to say Phil is the only one, which like he, I think he does like the gutter ball in no reaction. Everyone looks yes. at him. Every single time that we see him bull, it's zero reaction. They're just like continuously disappointed. There's not even like a, oh, you'll get it next time, man. It's all right. It's the, like, dude. The, only, the only supportive thing was when somebody said, oh, hey, yeah. And we mentioned this already. When somebody said, Phil, that's one of six. That's your best game yet. Yeah. That's the only supportive thing that I think anybody says to Phil in this whole episode. Oh, my God. That's so rough. I mean, I guess it's like, it's sort of like it's starting to turn around for Phil. Like he's, you know, it's like he's sort of on the right track but again I don't think we uh, I don't think we really necessarily end on the right track with the two of them we talked about their bus ride home them kind of seeming a little you know still very separated there is a deleted scene that would probably come at some point still in the bowling alley where Phil is kind of asking Michelle for bowling advice um not directly but she ends up like having to give him some advice and she's still pretty standoffish about it but she does give him good advice. Like she gives him like three or four things to focus on. And it almost kind of feels like she's forcing herself to say it, but she is being honest. And she's like, yeah, you got to like, you know, drop the ball here, like follow through this and that. And he's like, oh, good, good, good. You know, like, so they're able to talk. It's not like they they won't talk to each other, but it's still um, strenuous. 
I think that the most generous reading that I can give this this storyline right here is that it relates to Ed's plotline mm. in that Ed writes this script and it doesn't have a happy ending. Like Lester tries to make it a point to say like, oh, it has a lot of truth. It has a lot of grit. And it doesn't end like a Hollywood movie. And I guess maybe this was like the writer's way of doing or this. Or Lester... Sorry to cut you off, but Le- it does have a Hollywood ending in, in Ed's original script, but Lester wants it to be more real, he says. Right, 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 right. And in this case, they're trying to play off of that. They're trying to say, like, yeah, I guess they so. don't reconcile at the end. They have, like, a you know a disappointment right there. I can see that, yeah. It does tie in. That's that's pretty interesting. Similarly with Ed, like, it's not, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's pretty happy with Ed and Maurice at the end, but it's, it's pretty powerful, yeah. Well... Should mm-hmm. we should we just go back and uh, to the beginning of the episode and start talking about Ed and Heather and Lester and Maurice and that plot line? I think we got to do a West Wing tie-in okay. first. Yes. Because we hadn't said, I, I don't know if maybe you guys have covered this already in a previous episode, but both Paul Provenza and Terry Polo, the actor and actress who play uh, Phil and Michelle Capra, respectively, are both part of the cast of the West Wing. That's right. Paul Provenza had a, a more minor role than Terry Polo did. Paul Provenza was in season one or two. Uh, he's one of the guys who, he's not a congressman, he's not a senator, but he works for one of the senators or congressmen who goes to Sam, who tries to bring Sam out into the forefront of the conversation about some topic. I don't remember what it was. And then drop the whole um, sleeping with a prostitute scandal on Sam to embarrass him and, and mm. cause the pro- trouble for the White House. Uh, that was a very minor plot line. Uh, in one episode of The West Wing. But then Terry Polo, of course, plays Helen Santos, Matt Santos' wife, in season six and seven of the show and has a pretty major role and kind of develops as a character herself. And I think Terry Polo does a fantastic job um, in The West Wing. She's one of my favorite characters in the later seasons. Yeah, absolutely. She has one of my favorite line deliveries, too, where she says, um, let me get it out. I actually have it written down. (laughs) You do? She says, you don't have to say the right thing, which conveniently doesn't exist, but you do have to say something from your heart. And the way she delivers that line is extremely good, especially the which conveniently doesn't exist. Felt like she nailed it. This is the finale of season six, 2162 votes, when he's about to get up to give a speech to um, either announce that he's leaving the race or that he's going to stick in the race for the it is Democratic? Not. It is in season seven whenever it gets into a race relation episode in which... Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. The the police officer killing the um, the the school child or the, whoever, the young kid. Right, right. And it becomes a dilemma for uh, Matt Santos, who is Latino, and the shooter is Latino. So he goes and do a whole thing. And Helen Santos has to talk to him about that. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, uh, listener. This is like a huge West Wing thing uh, right there. Though I'm sure you're probably used to it by now. But I'm not going to ask for forgiveness for that. I love the West Wing. The West Wing is a great <laughs> show. I think everybody should watch it. But yes, I, I do remember that episode, and I think it's a great episode. Um, and, and you're right. That is a very good line delivery by Terry Polo. I agree with you, Charles. Yeah, maybe we do a Patreon episode focusing on Terry Polo's stint in the West Wing. Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Look out for. Yeah, one of our uh, guests definitely pointed out um, she loved Terry Polo and also like, you know, in the West Wing and, and other things. And I oh, think um, I think Terry Polo is pretty great in the show, too, in, in Northern Exposure. I think she does a pretty good job. But uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and dive into Ed's kind of plot line here. It opens with the opening gambit of the episode. We get a shot of the movie North by Northwest. It's being projected uh, on screen 
and we sort of like the camera sort of jibs down and we see below the screen is Ed and Heather. They're smooching. They're not really watching the movie. Ed is still paying attention to the film though, because like he'll uh, take a break from kissing and be like, oh, this is like the great part when like the camera moves in and the lighting changes. Uh, he calls, um, the director is Alfred Hitchcock and he's like, Hitch, Hitch has this great flair with like the camera and pushing in and turning the light. And, you know, they start kissing some more and then like the lights turn on. Actually, wait, wait, wait. Heather moves uh, Ed's hand to her butt and then they kiss and then the lights turn on and Lester and Maurice walk in and- Ed backs away (laughs) as quickly as he can. (laughs) They all kind of get up away from the couch. Pretty obvious what happened here, though Lester doesn't really make a comment. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, I guess we should say- uh, Jay, do you remember this character, Heather Haynes? I don't remember Heather at all. Turns out she's only in three episodes, and this is, Charles, this is the last episode with Heather. And I looked up the actress to see if I could find her in anything else, and I, there's only like one other movie that she's been in, and yeah. I think she went on to become a psychiatrist, if I, I, I read think Google correctly. Actually, I think she has two acclaimed novels. She's a actually. novelist now, yeah. Really? And okay. I think she's a professor okay. at uh, some college in California. So, uh, but yeah, I think we talked about this before. I wish I remembered, but one of her books was actually like long listed for, was it the National Book Award or something? Hmm. But um, yeah, she's a prolific author. I guess she did a little bit of acting around this era, but then never really did it again, as far as we can tell, at least with yeah. IMDb. Yeah, so I don't I don't really remember her character at all. I remember the character of Lester. I know he's been yeah. in episodes before as, you know, one of the uh, native Inuit peoples who was part of the, almost a background. I mean, he would have some minor roles in other episodes, but mm-hmm. uh, obviously he's having now a major role in, in Ed's plot lines since Ed is dating his daughter. Yeah. I think canonically in the series, he's like the second richest person after Maurice. Okay. Though it certainly seems like he has more money than Maurice, or at least maybe he it just does. like flaunts it a little more. Anyway, you know, everyone kind of knows what's happening here, but no one really comments on it. And uh, Lester and Maurice leave the screening room, uh, at which point Heather and Ed continue to make out and they start kissing and they sort of fall out uh, to the bottom of the frame. And the camera stays on the movie screen uh, where we see the actor Cary Grant, like in the movie, he's getting shot by the woman, which I think is Eva Marie Saint. But yeah, you know, some foreshadowing subtext that... Heather has always sort of been this femme fatale character, like in the first episode that she was introduced. And well, I guess in the last episode that we saw her in, she wasn't really femme fatale, but she was just like a foil, maybe like she was a bad character who got fired. She was working at, um, she was working at Maggie's movie theater when she started opening up this movie theater and Maggie had to fire Heather and she had to also sort of change some things that they were doing with Ed was also working at the movie theater as well. Yeah, uh, she's a very irresponsible character, which, to the show's credit, I think they're following through with that. They're showing that she's still irresponsible. And even in this scene, because before Lester leaves, he tells her and says, all right, well, just try to use coasters on the table, please. I imagine it's a very rich coaster, since he's a very rich man. (laughs) And Heather disregards the advice, because even Ed's like, hey, should we go get some coasters? And she's like, Ed, no, it doesn't matter. It's his money. She definitely, she definitely seems young and rebellious. And I'm not sure how old the characters are supposed to be. I know Ed's supposed to be like a young kid when we first meet him in season one, but we're in season six now. So surely he should be like in his early to mid twenties or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So by that time you would have expected him to be a little bit more emotionally mature. Is he really 
how how old is Heather supposed to be? I don't know, but she seems like she's a teenager, at least right. in my mind. I think that's like kind of how I see yeah. it. Did they not make it a point in this episode to say that she's been to college? Oh yeah, that's oh, did true. they? Well, I don't yeah, know if they said they? college, but yeah, maybe they did say college. Yeah, I think there's so. a line where Lester says that he sent her to Maurice. Yeah, says that. Oh, Maurice, 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 Maurice said that Lester sent her to. Is it? It starts with a B. Is it Berkeley? I can is find it Barcelona. It. I have her in Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah, and I assume that was for. Uh, like college or something. Yeah, that makes could sense. Could be, could be boarding school, like high school level. Oh, uh, that's true. It, it uh, implied I don't know. E- some sort either of Either way, she's. Thing. Either way, it seems like she's in either like the nineteen to twenty-two age range. That's kind of what it right. seems. Like and it seems like Ed is probably a couple years older than her. That's the vibe I get, anyway, from the the age range. Just the of maturity, those two yeah, the feeling of maturity. Right. Yeah. Well, we do learn in the last episode that we see her is she just mostly likes to. Uh, her her father seems to be very controlling of her life. So a lot of that could just stem from her trying to rebel against um, an overbearing parent. Whereas Ed, you know, didn't have any parents. He's kind of like, he can kind of do whatever he wants, really. So he never had that sort of complex, you know? He may not have had any parents, but Maurice definitely appears yeah, as a father figure, uh, mm-hmm. especially at the end of this episode or at the end of Ed's plot line. Yeah. Well, the next scene we see is with Ed and Lester. Ed is hunting. Uh, Lester has brought him on like a hunting trip. And I uh, actually can't remember. Do they, like he's got his sights on a buck or something. Does he yeah. actually shoot it? Does he hit it? I think he does. I think he does hit nice. it. And look, I've never been hunting before in my life, but Same. that's not hunting. <laughs> that's not yeah. hunting. No. He, he, he turns around and walks to a tent where there's like <laughs> catering, 10 humans preparing. Tent, yeah. No deer would come within a mile of that. Yeah, I, you know, There's no way. You know how there's like it's a very long camping. sniper scope. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's Sorry, camping ahead. and then there's glamping, which is where you like you yeah. live in a very fancy thing. And what is this called? Is this gl- gl- glunting? Glunting. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> how it works is that immediately after they shoot this buck, the camera follows them as they walk back. It's a continuous you, shot too, right? It's right. like it follows with them. It doesn't cut. Yeah, and you're wondering where they're going to, and then suddenly you see people that are fancily dressed. Someone's cooking in the background and stuff. Right, yeah. and even Lester's like, "How do you like your view?" And he's like, "Ah, a little pink is fine." So, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was going to be at this stage of the episode. I thought there was going to be something to deal with wealth, which it is to a degree. It is, but I thought it was going to be Ed being intoxicated by wealth. But ah, really, yeah. it's just uh, it's just the trappings of it. Because what's happening here is that they're having their lunch and Lester is kind of treating this lunch as a kind of an investment right here because he's talking to Ed about his film, his uh, his script. And Ed's saying that he's got a couple of nibbles here and there, but nothing concrete because it's, you know, he lives in Sicily, Alaska, really far away from Los Angeles, kind of hard to get communication between those two. And then Lester kind of opens it up and says, you know, if it's only $500,000, that's nothing to me. I can float it. Like, I can come in and be your investor for this film. And Ed says, like, oh, that's great, because I think you would love it. It's called The Shaman. It's about, you know, this guy who's trying to decide between his city life or stick to his roots, which I think everybody can tell immediately. Subtext for today's episode. Well, yeah, Lester, you know, he's curious. He's he's really, I guess, wants to know about what it would be like to finance a film. So he's like, yeah, let me read your script. Bring it over tonight. I'll read it tonight. So at this point, at this point, do we have any hint at all of why Lester is doing this? I mean, because later it's sort of revealed that he's just doing this to try to drive a wedge between Ed and his daughter. I don't, at this point, yeah. I don't really feel that indication, but it does seem sort of 
off character a little bit for somebody who seems this shrewd with his money and his funds that he would want to finance the film of a kid who's never made a film before. Uh, you know, he's not investing in something successful or that has proven that it could be successful. Uh, th- so it seemed, that part seems kind of off to me. So that could be a hint. However, I, I'm not going to completely discredit that because, I mean, maybe Lester's the type of businessman who's always looking for new investments. And this is a new thing that he wants to try. And he accepts that, oh, it's it's not that much money. He can afford it. Yeah, so, yeah I, I could see it from both sides. He also has like a small little line where he says like, you know, films are kind of like the future now. Like this is how okay. you establish cultural dominance. I can see into the future that this is going to be the talk of the town. And so like, you know, I want to stay relevant. I want to stay in the game. So yeah, I think it's a win for both sides. Though I will so say, he's, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he's spinning it well. Lester, and I, uh, that's a good point you brought up. I forgot he said that. Uh, Lester's spinning it well to make it less obvious to add that he's trying to drive a wedge between him and his daughter, if mm-hmm. that's what he's truly trying to do, which I think it is. I When I saw this at the time I, I guess maybe I was naive because I believed in the best of Lester. I was actually really happy. I was like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that you can see it at that point. Um, I'm not saying that it's obvious of what Lester's trying to do at that point. Uh, when you watch the episode a second time, yeah, you see, you see obviously Lester's just doing this as a ploy to get in that direction of driving the wedge. But I, I agree with you, Charles, that I, the first time watching through with a fresh set of eyes, no, I, I wouldn't necessarily see it at this point. You know, we feel really happy for Ed that such a windfall has come for him. I mean, come on, like, this is it. Yeah. You're finally getting someone to give you the collateral for your films. And, you know, I kind of saw it maybe even happening because we're getting to the end of season six. I was like, is this how it wraps Ooh. up? Like, Lester comes <laughs> That's in a good point. and, like, yeah. really jumpstarts Ed's career. This is about to be awesome. Like, I was... I was on board. Man, you missed the opportunity to say Lester leaps in, which is a jazz song. <laughs> <laughs> Alliteration right there. Well, I mean, yeah, it is a little suspicious the way the scene opens. Is like, why is Lester, you know, inviting Ed out to this? Like, it it does kind of feel like that Lester is in, you know, sort of inviting Ed into the family. If it's like, okay, I see that my daughter is with Ed. I mean, it's that or it's the other option, which is revealed in the end. It's like he wants to try to leverage something on Ed to sort of like, if Ed thinks, if Ed is more attached to his film than he is attached to my daughter, then I can split them with this. But that, that's a good point. I think you, you could see it from, hey, the show's ending. However, it's okay. We're in episode 19 of season six. Does the cast and crew at this point know that their film has not been renewed for a seventh season? You know, I think I think there are some actors that say they just didn't, they had no idea that it was not going to do another season. But I mean, I could be wrong. I kind of, do you remember anything like that, Charles? I, I wish I did. If you ask me, I feel like they must have, they must have known because like Rob Morrow left and then it's like, we have to finish out the season still. Because they were, yeah. they were confirmed for 20, for a full season. So they, they weren't going to end the show after Rob left. They knew that they had more episodes. Well, they okay. knew they knew that ratings weren't doing so hot because I remember yeah. uh, watching a relatively recent interview with um, Barry Corbin saying that they knew that the ratings weren't as good as they were in season two and three compared to the very last season. And I think he makes it like it kind of implies that like he knows that the show is going to end on that season. Yeah. So I, I want to say that the cast kind of knew. I feel like they must have. So there's a sense of 
of knowing that they have to come to some sort of stopping point. So, yeah, I could see how you could read this scene with Lester and Ed as, hey, we're driving Ed toward a home at the end of this, at the yeah. end of the show, or oh, at the end of the season at the very least. I definitely think the producers, like the executive producers at the time, David Chase, Diane Farlove, Andrew Schneider, I, I would definitely believe that they know that they have to end the show with this season. Feel like that, and I haven't rewatched the finale, but I feel like when we watch it, Charles, it's going to feel like the end. You know, mm. hmm. I think so. Well, yeah. Let's continue here. We get a scene with Maurice and Ed, and Maurice is really angry with Ed. He's not doing all the work he should be doing. Not dusting the shelves. It's clear that Ed has become too busy with Heather. Uh, Maurice says something like, "You know where I come from? It's work first and play later." And he, Maurice gives Ed some advice to back off of Heather. Basically like kind of saying like Heather is out of your league. He says, you fly in different flocks. This is the, this is where we learn about the Barcelona thing. He says, uh, do you think that Lester Haynes raised his only daughter sent her to Cantwell country day, junior year at Barcelona to end up with Ed Chigliak? So maybe that was actually, it could be junior year of high school. It could be junior year of college. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just pretty, uh, that's just pretty dirty to say to, to Ed like that, just to kind of like it give is. him no value there. But but immediately after that, um, Maurice says, look, that didn't come out quite the way I wanted it to, Ed. He's, he, he just let his, Maurice just let his mouth go on and on. And I don't think he, I think there's parts of Maurice that definitely has like. You don't think he meant to be as mean? I don't, I don't think he meant to be mean, but I also think there's parts of him that think less of Ed too, which is bad. I mean, there's a, there's definitely the selfish aspect of Maurice, right. like, hey, if I drive a wedge between yeah. uh, Ed and Heather, then <laughs> that means Ed can shelves. keep working yeah. for me and dusting my shelves and all this stuff. You know, it's sort of like his way of keeping power over Ed. Not yeah. that he has to, not that he should necessarily want to, but I mean, maybe a small part of him does, from a yeah. selfish perspective, want to maintain his relationship over Ed. You know, I think with this episode, with this plot line, maybe it's like Maurice that was like always his sort of like the way he perceived Ed. But after this episode, I think he has a new perception where he understands he's like, Oh, I need to stop looking at Ed as just like this one side, like this one, he's just like my gopher and does this and uh, dust my things. Like now I understand that I love this boy. He's my son, mm-hmm. you know. You know, he's yeah, like a son. Yeah, to me. and definitely stop towards the end, like you, that, you know. He's the father figure. Yeah. yeah, at the end of the episode, I think that um, the, number one, I really like how he said that line and how it's written. It has yeah. such a great dagger, like a shanking motion toward it. Like when he ended with to end up with Ed Chigliak, like mm-hmm. that is a wonderful sentence right there to hear to to break somebody. And I was like, oh, this is great. I was really on board with that. Uh, I, I guess like... You mean in terms of believability? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> of the I, drama, yeah. I, I think yeah. if I want to fast forward a little bit on there and try to get my thoughts on this, because I think that maybe this is like the best place for me to express it at this moment in the episode, is that Maurice has an opinion that Ed's status is not compatible with Heather's. And he feels like that is the driving force for why they cannot remain together. Now, ultimately, we see at the end of the episode, that's not actually it. What makes Ed break up with Heather is their incompatibility with each other personality-wise. That one trumps the, the status between them. And I think if we just had like one scene where Maurice also sees that, where Maurice renounces and says like, 
all right, you know what? I didn't mean to say that. And you know what? I'm even wrong on that. Let's just say I'm wrong, but I still think you shouldn't be together because you two don't even like work well with each other. Yeah. And Ed, you know, rebuffs him on, on, you know, defensively. Maurice could have been like, she's not good enough for you, basically. Yeah, something like that. And then we get hmm. to the end of the episode where Ed has that emotional moment. That would have hit it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Then I would have been like, this is amazing. But mm-hmm. like the way it ends, and in my eyes, is that like he still believes that their status is what keeps them apart. And we know that's not true, nor should it be true. So uh, that's why I wasn't very comfortable with the ending of Ed saying like, you know, I'm so sorry. You're right. You're like a father, you know, figure for me. It it didn't sit well with me from that notion that Maurice still believes in the back of his mind that like it was a separation of like cultural status between them that disallowed them oh. to be together. Oh yeah. I was going to say, I don't necessarily think that maybe Ed in the end believes that it's like, you know, it's the, it's the um, financial standing, like the status there. That's like keeping them apart. But I, I guess what you're saying, yeah, maybe Maurice is still, he, he might just still see it as that's what happened, which is a little sad. Right. And that's what bothers me. But for Ed, for Ed, I think it's, um, I think it's pretty profound or it's pretty. No, amazing. no. And Ed, Ed knows it. Ed, yeah. we see it. We'll talk about it as soon as we, you know, when we get to it. But like Ed realizes that like, oh, she's just not like a very respectful individual. And I don't want to be with that type of person. Ed, Ed can see like just her as a human, not just you know, whatever wealth that she has, whatever class that she belongs to. He just sees it as like, oh, she's really petty and I don't, I don't want to be with this person. Which is like, you know, great. Good for, good for you, Ed. But I just really wish Maurice could have seen that too. Yeah, that would have been great. I like I liked your little uh, punch up there. Um, well, the next scene is Heather and Ed going shopping or Ed's taking Heather shopping. And uh, we get a montage to theme from a summer place. We see like, first Heather's like in a red dress. She ch- tries a lot of outfits, but that's the first thing we see. And Ed like sees the price tag and it says $800. And then she's like trying on jewelry and all this stuff. But anyway, yeah, it's very uncomfortable because Ed is like realizing that this stuff's so expensive. He like couldn't afford it. But I mean, she's got a... um. She has her own credit card, so she ends up signing the check and stuff. But in this scene, Ed asks Heather if she wants to go steady. She says it's an old-fashioned concept, but Ed wants other people to know that they're serious. Like, he wants to feel like she values him. Like, you know, she would, she loves to show off these clothes and things, but he wants to feel like he's something that she would show off maybe. Or like, you know, he just wants to feel like they're on the same level of like, they value each other the same way. Mm-hmm. He gives her um, the one ring to rule them all. You know, the uh, the Sauron ring on the, um, on the necklace. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he gives her like a ring on the necklace. I'm not actually, I'm wondering what, if that ring is um, from a previous episode. I know there's that episode where Ed finds like Federico Fellini's ring in the, in the belly of a fish. But then I think he gets rid of it. I don't know if this ring comes into, do you remember this? Like Charles, have you seen this ring before? I don't think so. No, I haven't seen this ring, but it makes me think like, is that the same ring that summons Federico? Yeah. That's what I was <laughs> like, thinking. is she about to see visions? <laughs> I don't know, Jay, if you remember that episode, but there's like a, I don't, there's an episode where like he finds a ring in, in a fish that he's a trout or something that he caught and he finds it as he's eating it. And he, it's like Federico Fellini's ring. It's like inscribed or something. The direct, the Italian director. And he like puts it on and he has these weird, like, 
very Italian foreign film, like visions and stuff. Hmm. It's weird. No, I don't remember that episode. <laughs> but surely there's some significance to surely there's some significance to the ring or the yeah. ring with the necklace that he gives to Heather. I just I don't know what it would be. Not just I, like I, a, I think it's um I, I actually do think there's something there. You're right, Jay. And what I mean by this is that Ed makes it a point to say, like, hey, do you want to go study? And Heather replies back saying that, you know, that's a little bit of an old-fashioned concept. And I think that goes in line with Ed's belief in, like, that Hollywood ending. Yeah. And that, like, he is just a very old-fashioned individual. And, like, the ring, you know, that's one step away from slipping the ring onto someone's finger. So, like, Mm -hmm. he's trying to get through it in, like, our natural progression. It's like, you asked a girl out, you go steady, then you get serious, and then you marry her. So like the ring could be like a step for that. Or like in a, in a traditional traditional uh, progression. I think it's just another thing that serves to highlight the differences between the two. Uh, in addition to yeah. the the perception of the class, that they're in different classes of society. Um, and she can spend all this money because her dad's rich. And uh, I think that the ring and her saying, hey, it's a bit old fashioned. I think it just serves to highlight that. Yes, they are. They are different. I think Ed sort of realizes at this point, even before giving her the ring, when he sees all the money she's spending that, Hey, there is a difference here. Mm-hmm. Maybe Maurice is onto something as depressing as that is. Cause I don't want Ed to come to that conclusion. I don't think that there should be a limitation on anybody, any two people being together because of differences in, in social standing or perceived differences in social standing. I think Ed is falling into Maurice's way of thinking that, yeah, there's a difference. So whether Ed is seeing the same differences in social standing that Maurice pointed out, or he's seeing the other differences, which are her immaturity, her incompatibility with him, I think either way, those differences are are being brought out and made more apparent by her reactions to his advances. Definitely. Well, the next scene, Ed walks into Maurice's office at K-Bear, and uh, he's delivering a, a letter. To Maurice, he doesn't say anything. He looks very serious. Maurice takes the letter and reads it. He says, due to prevailing circumstances, effective immediately, I will no longer be available for employment. And Ed says, I think it's time I moved on, Maurice. Um, They get into a little bit of a fight. I think Ed says that, you know, Lester's going to produce my movie. I don't know if there's much more you guys want to say, but I I know that they do sort of argue a bit before the end of this scene. There's a good back and forth between them because it has a natural progression of an argument where Ed says, like like you mentioned, Lee, hey, Lester's going to produce my movie. He believes in me, unlike you. And Marty says, well, what is that supposed to mean? You know I've been supporting you since yeah. you were 12. And then Adder counters back, you know, with a right hook. And he says, no, all you believe in me is that I can dust your shelves. You do like manual labor like that. Right. And then Maurice counters and says, look – you have to earn your opportunities to grow because I gave you like a full budget for the Sicily right. Film Festival and you yeah. squandered it. That's not my fault. And where I'm coming from, a man has to do this stuff and it Ed has the finality and says so like, look, I'm sick and tired of you saying where you're from. I don't care about that. I care about where I'm from. And like that's, that's like a good progression of like how an argument should be. Yeah. <laughs> good writing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say kudos to Ed for standing up for himself. Um, that's that's a hard thing to do, a tough thing to do, and and he you know he stands his ground. He he gives Maurice the letter, says he's no longer available, and he stands his ground with Maurice in the argument that you were talking about, Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't back down, 
which I think shows a lot of growth for Ed. He doesn't just roll over and say, okay, and get back to work with Maurice. <laughs> he says, no, this is, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. Part of my life needs to be about me, not your needs, you know? Yeah. Uh, so kudos to Ed for, for doing that and showing that level of um, growth as a character, I think. So uh, friendship ended with Maurice. Lester is now my new best friend. Uh, <laughs> that mean, that mean, uh, well, the next scene, Maurice goes into Ruthann's store because we know um, Ed works there from time to time. Maurice has brought Ed's jacket. He's like, I'm trying to return this. I'm going to leave it here with you, Ruthann. And Maurice begins to leave. And he's like, oh, also, you know, could you ask Ed if he wants me, like, what, what am I supposed to do with his share of the salmon that we caught on our last fishing trip? Because, like, if he wants me to keep it in my freezer, I could do that. That's no problem to me. But if he wants me to move it to Hollings freezer, that's no problem either. And Ruthann, not a whole lot. I wish the scene went a little further. Not a lot happens, but Ruthann basically says, you know, Ed told me what happened, the fight and stuff. And she says to Maurice, I know you're only trying to help. And, um... That's pretty much all that Ruthann has to say. Maurice is like trying to kind of write it all off. He doesn't, he doesn't want to show that he's like hurt on the inside. So he's like, ah, oh, it's whatever, you know, I don't know. He's like, he, the boy did what he wants to do or whatever. I, I've always looked out for him like since he was a boy, but whatever. And now we arrive at the next scene where Ed is meeting up with Lester, who is by all accounts, being a professional, he's yeah. looking at the, he's read the script, he's drawing up a preliminary budget, he's managed to cut it down by like 20%, I want to say, 500,000 down to 400,000, probably yeah. due to the changes that he's doing to the script. Maybe he's like writing out some, you know, I think X was, and out car chases or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it was like, if you can shoot it in 25 days, because they never like talked about how many days of shooting it would be, but um, Ed's like, yeah, I could totally shoot this in 25 days. And he's like, then we could probably budget it for 400 then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's providing notes too. He's like, you're doing everything. Yeah. Like, you're doing a great job. He said, he said he read the script three times in one night or whatever. Oh gosh. Um, he's got a couple notes. It's very professional. And yeah. I mean, it shows that he's serious about his investment. No yeah. matter what the purpose is for, it sounds like he still wants to follow through with it and help Ed make the movie. Yeah, I like that. If he's trying to drive a wedge or not, right? I like that about Lester. He's just like that's a very. And good I mean, it, it shows that he's a he's it shows that he's a shrewd businessman by being able to pare down the budget. You know, he's he's right. looking out for the bottom line, uh, regardless of the investment, regardless of however much freedom of creativity that you would want for a film. He says, "Nope, you're going to do it for this amount." He's he's business. Right, right. Uh, to complement that even further is that he finds a problem with the ending. He says, like, the ending is a Hollywood cliche, and you're trying to make, like, an actual bona fide true grit film. Feels very realistic. And if you want your film to be objectively better, in my eyes, what you need to do is change the ending. You need to make it so the shaman doesn't get with the girl. He's disappointed, but he goes back to his village, sadder but wiser, and ready to become a leader. And so, like, he may have ulterior motives of saying that to drive a wedge between uh, Ed and Heather, like you mentioned, Jay. But he's also just looking at it just, you know, from a screenwriting process. He's just yeah. like, nah, I'm not buying this ending. Like, act three's got to end in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he could be right about the notes. Like, I haven't read his notes, so I don't know what the ending is. But, like, yeah, exactly. the truth could is, be like, right. he could be giving him really good advice. But it uh, does. Objectively, do you guys think that it's good advice? Ah, uh, maybe so. Like it could yeah. possibly be a better film. I really wouldn't know unless I saw the two. Yeah. I I could see it being an even better film, maybe. But exactly, like it really depends on the film. So like, 
the message that he's trying to tell it could be strengthened by the fact that like yeah like it was incompatible for these reasons but i guess whether or not it is good advice or honest advice it ultimately boils down to like i don't know if ed says it but i definitely had this thought it's like okay what are they really talking about and uh lester's like he does say well take you and heather we both know that relationship isn't going anywhere and Ed is just like staring him down. I, again, like I'm oftentimes really impressed with uh, Darren Burroughs, the actor, just kind of like stares down Lester Haynes. And he says like, now why is that Mr. Haynes? And um, Lester says, look, I want to make your movie, Ed, but we need to understand each other first. The shaman does not get the girl. Now, if you're ready to accept my changes, I'm ready to write out a check today. If not, well, just think it over. So the ultimatum is clear. Uh, this is, yeah, it's whether or not it was good advice, like ultimately it's the film or the girl. It kind of, I think that Ed still can defy him. Like you can accept the changes on the script and be like, okay, in this particular story of my character, it does end in that way. But in my own life, it doesn't end that way. I can buck it. I can fight back. I can win <laughs> in the end. It's not like Mr. Hain gives him an ultimatum and says like, hey, you got to break up with Heather in order for me to finance this film. He doesn't say that at all. Uh, all he says is, I mean, you have to accept the change. What Ed is doesn't say it, imply, yeah, he doesn't I say it literally. But. I think, in my opinion, in the way I'm reading it is that Ed's not willing to give up on the principle of the thing. He wants yeah. to earnestly believe that in both the oh, script yeah, that's and in his own life, the Hollywood cliche can win. It can ultimately prevail. That's what he wants to win. I do. I do agree. I think. I think uh, Ed wants that philosophy. Like he, that's his sort of like philosophy. He wants to live by as well as not like not budge on the script. But that's like what he believes in. That's why it's his movie. But I also do believe that Lester is using this as a way to drive a wedge because we learn in a future scene that Lester did the same thing to um, to one of Heather's ex boyfriends by like buying him a motorcycle. So that he would break up with Heather. The red right. Kawasaki, which so, so have, uh, Ed immediately catches. So Ed sees the pattern. I mean, it, it, Charles, you're right. That it's not explicitly stated by Lester that, hey, I want you to choose Heather or the movie. So Ed could still pursue both. Yeah. You're right about that. But, I mean, based on the tactics that Leonard is employing and the past history of breaking up Heather with her boyfriends who he thinks aren't good enough, it's pretty clear that – what Lester meant to imply was that Ed, you gotta, you, you, you will not end up with my daughter. But what I think is uh, important that Charles is also pointing out is that what Ed is thinking is that like, it's not necessarily to Ed. It's more about the principle. Like he wouldn't change the script, not because he wants to keep Heather as a girlfriend, but because like in his ideology of the world, he's like, no, that's how things, that's how I want things to work in my art. That's what I believe in like, Fair. that's my truth, you know? But Fair. how, oh God, it's like I'm trying to write a revisionist <laughs> episode on this because how much <laughs> better would it be if Lester didn't do that? Like if he didn't have a history of breaking up Heather's boyfriend, <laughs> what if instead of having that, we just had this sort of ideological argument? Is that what you're right, saying? It's like between right. them. Exactly. And Ed sees Ed, the next scene. Ed's fighting for his script because he thinks that's right for the script, for the movie, for the art, regardless of whether... 
Lester wants to break them up or not. Right. Yeah, I think you're right, Charles. That would be a more compelling episode. Yeah, I think like Ed wants to believe in this goodness in the world. And then in the next thing when he sees Heather, instead of them talking about Lester's tactics of breaking up her old boyfriend, what they talk about is their incompatibility with each other. And Ed sees it's like, oh, I just I I don't see myself being with her long term. And then he goes to, you know, his office to break up because he realizes that like my philosophy, it isn't true. It be like, it isn't always that you're going to get the Hollywood cliche. And that's why I'm turning it down because my, my worldview has been changed. Like life is a lot more complicated. It's not as simple as just the happy ending. Right. And so we cannot accept the offer uh, for that. Cause he just, I don't know. He just feels a little bit more broken down. You could argue and say like, well then why doesn't he just accept the changes? <laughs> and, that, and that's good. Right then. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I, give me a little tinkering, <laughs> a little bit of more tinkering. I think I can, I, I can get that. I can work around that. A couple more drafts been, of the script. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have been more compelling. And so like, well, let's, let's talk yeah. about it. I'm going to bring us into the next scene, which is that Heather opens up and says, like, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. He always does this. You know, he tries to break up my boyfriends. He did it with the last one, but bribing him with a red Kurosawa motorbike. And yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Kurosawa. Uh, <laughs> Kawasaki. I'm sorry. Kawasaki. Kawasaki. <laughs> and Heather gets the bright idea to say, like, you know what? Let's just make him mad. Instead of, like, talking it through. I'm going to wear something that he doesn't like. We're going to be lovey-dovey. We're going to get with each other, get intimate, and we're just going to infuriate him. And Ed's like, that wouldn't fulfill anything other than just making him mad. mad yeah, It wouldn't solve the problem at all. That's when he finally sees, like, hey, Heather's, like, not a great individual. Yeah, Ed, Ed also says, like, I just, you can see that he wants Lester to know that they're serious about each other. It's like they're not going to break up because of this movie. Like, you can't drive a wedge like that. And he says, like, we should just try talking to him. Heather's like, no, nah, it's, it's never going to work. This is more fun, you know? I think that shows maturity in Ed. Yeah, That he sure. wants to just, you know, let's have a conversation and say, hey, look, we, we think we can make this work. And Heather's reaction sort of reveals further how she's still, you know, younger. She's still immature. She's still acting like a teenager who's rebelling against her father. And what I'm seeing is that, is like Heather is using Ed as a way to rebel against her father, whereas Ed values Heather as like a partner. And they're they're just not on the same level of commitment, like what they want from the relationship. Maybe Heather just wants a fling and maybe she just wants to piss off her dad. I think that's what we're getting, at least. She just wants to make her dad angry. That's That seems to be the most fun for her. So... Yeah, this is it's definitely not a great not a great relationship right now. <laughs> I think I think regardless of differences in social standing that Ed having had the conversation with Maurice and Lester has realized that oh, there are differences between me and her. Those differences may not be the things that others pointed out, they may be these other things, but now he at least yeah, knows that he can look for those things and know that knows that he can make a choice. About those things. Right, right, exactly. I think Heather, at the end of this scene, she says something like, me going out with Ed Chigliak? I'm surprised he let it go on this long. And that just, mm, like, so, reminded right. me of what Maurice had said. Like, can you believe that he would let, you know, or like, um, what makes you think that, you know, he would let his daughter go out with Ed Chigliak or whatever? It's just like putting no value to Ed or making him feel, like, less than. Very terrible. Anyway, um, Lester is in his screening room or something watching, I guess that's like the Three Stooges, when Ed comes in to see him. And 
Ed announces to Lester that he's not going to be seeing Heather anymore, but he also doesn't want Lester to produce the film. He says, I, I just don't think I can make a film with someone who doesn't think I'm good enough for his daughter. Right. And then uh, Lester counters back and says, like, no, you're, you're twisting my words. I was just talking long-term compatibility. Like, if you guys want to, like, you know, have a fling or anything like that, that's fine. There's no value judgment attached to this. And Ed says, whatever. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And which is, like, a pretty good response by him. Yeah. And then Lester also makes it a point and says that, you know, if you and Heather are really through there's still no like reason for you not to go through with this offer that I'm doing. Cause now we're just talking business. Now we have nothing personally entangling us, but Ed's still like, no, I still don't want to be involved in this. Yeah. I mean, he's like, does he, I think he just boils that down to like, I don't want to be working on this art, like with someone who doesn't think I'm good, like good enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. He's feeling undervalued as a person. I mean, again, kudos to Ed for standing up and saying no, Whatever. I'm done. I think that's empowering. That shows growth in Ed's character. Yeah, it's a very empowering statement from Ed right there. And he even gets a leave on the highest of notes, the very mature one where he turns around to Lester and says, oh, I think that you and your daughter need to have a talk because obviously there's something boiling underneath the surface and you guys are not confronting it. Boom. There you go. Yes. That shows so much growth in Ed that he's aware of that type of thing. Uh, he's becoming more mature as a person. He can stand up for himself. He can stand up for Lester. He can make identify issues with potential relationships uh, for longer term and, and whatnot. I think that shows so much growth in Ed as a character. And uh, I like that about this episode is that it shows that for Ed, regardless of the seemingly crappy circumstances of people not believing in him, mm -hmm. i.e. Maurice and Lester saying, you're not good enough. That That's a crappy feeling. And, you know, I recognize that. But kudos to him for powering through and, and having some growth. Well, I mean, speaking of people that don't believe in him, uh, we return back to the very first one. <laughs> we see Ed back in Maurice's place. Business as usual. He's trying to dust, trying to make sure that his place looks clean. And Maurice is like, whoa, what are you doing here? And Ed says, I still had the key, you know, just wanted to get in and get some work done. And, uh, oh, and uh, you know that like glass bowl that you had? I you know, we don't see it, but it's presumably it's cracked from Ed. It's like the NASA commemorative globe or something. Right. He says. And he says, like, I'm sorry, Maurice. And then, like, it quickly turns around where he's saying, like, I'm so sorry. You know, it's going further than just that object. And he hugs Maurice. And they have a very an emotional moment. And I don't want to downplay this in any way. It's a great performance between both of them. I think that, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we rarely get this moment of uh, emotional vulnerability between the characters. It, it just doesn't happen that often in Northern Exposure. And I, it, it's wonderful, well-delivered, yes. But like I mentioned earlier in the episode, why is he sorry? Because Maurice still believes, at least from what we're led to believe, is that those two don't belong to each other because of status and not because of personality. I mean, maybe it's a case where Ed just doesn't quite know what to say. So he's just sort of defaults to, I'm sorry. Maybe he's hung up on that phrase, I'm sorry, because he broke the glass globe. And that just sort of swells up into this emotion of, I'm feeling sad right now because I didn't exactly get what I want, but I, I need some help coping with that moment before I can move on. Mm -hmm. And so he just kind of hangs on to the phrase, I'm sorry for a little while. Maybe that's the reason. Yeah, I think I would just say, I think it's just a slurry of a lot of emotions. Like, 
I mean, he wasn't broken up with, but he's going through a breakup. Um, right. So that that could be part of it. I do. I see what you're saying, though, Charles. That it doesn't necessarily give like a super satisfying sort of thematic close to what Ed maybe has learned about. Like, we don't want Ed to take away from this, as you're saying, Charles. We don't want him to take away the the idea that it's like, oh, like it's the social, it's the um, like our our place on the social ladder. You know, like we'll never be able to be together because of things like that. We don't want him to take that lesson from this. I, I think maybe it's just a wellspring of emotion. And for me, even though Maurice is not necessarily crying, I think like, uh, he's not the one crying, but I think, uh, I think it's powerful for Maurice to like also realize what we were saying earlier in the episode is like, he may not have noticed, but he wasn't valuing Ed as like, as the son that he is to him, like kind of the stand-in yeah. son. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think Maurice does have a lot, you know, does really love Ed, obviously, and put a lot of value in Ed, but he's not himself realizing that he's not like, um, it's not treating him that way. And so I think by the end here, they're able to have this moment where they do feel like father and son. And so for Maurice, I feel really good. For Ed, I'm I'm kind of with you as well, Charles. It doesn't I don't like Oh, uh, you don't go ahead. I was gonna say, like, you know what would have been like a great ending <laughs> to this. Okay, so like you know how he says More rewrites the, yeah. the rewrites camera, by Charles. Yeah, so like the camera goes, it, it flips between like shot reverse shot, where we're seeing like Ed hug Maurice and Maurice hugs Ed. We're seeing it from both perspectives. When Ed says, I'm so sorry, Maurice, if it like flips to Maurice's reaction and he says, No, I'm sorry, Ed. Yeah. Aww. And then it fades yeah. right there. Oh my God, that'd be so amazing. It would be good, yeah. I I am, I do like how understated it is, you know, at times, but yeah, they could have really, they could have really got everyone crying too. If uh, if Maurice Maurice started breaking down too, it would have been, it would have been good. I like that this shows, seemingly shows growth in Maurice uh, as a character as well, because if I think back to how Maurice was in the first and second seasons, he was just, at least emotionally, somewhat aloof. He didn't quite understand why characters would react to certain things certain ways, and he would just dismiss it as, oh, that's not masculine enough for me. Mm -hmm. But in this scenario, he's not like that. He's not dismissing Ed. And I think it is, I think your point was rightly, it is because he's seeing himself as a father figure uh, to Ed, and that he values Ed's relationship with him as um, almost like a son and he's he's there to comfort him and he doesn't he doesn't reject that reaching out of ed emotionally and he he just holds him and comforts him and i think that's there's a lot of growth in maurice yeah i imagine maurice doesn't have ed come dust his shelves just because they're dirty i think he just like really likes hanging out with ed i mean at this point obviously like they're it's a small town of you know of course but but like they're close friends. Like he wants Ed around and like, he's, you know, they have a greater relationship than just like employer employee. Yeah. I, that's a good read, Jay. I, I think that's making me come around with that scene even more. <laughs> I, I think what you're yeah, saying, yeah. it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong. The, your rewrite would be fantastic, right? It'd be emotionally dramatic end on a oh, heart, heart melting moment. But I think that even with the way the scene actually plays out in the recording, that it is still a, a good conclusion for, Here's a father and son that will support each other, even though they make mistakes or underestimate each other or undervalue each other or don't quite agree all the time. But they're still to the point where the son can stand up to the father and stand up for himself. But at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. he can still come home and and be comforted. And the father's willing to do that. Beautiful. All right. I think we're walking away with uh, 
pretty pleased with that plot line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am pleased with that plot line. All parties are like, we're in agreement right here. And uh, that leaves us with the very last one, which is going to be Chris and Maggie. So we're going to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the episode, back in that bowling alley that we touched upon briefly, where we see Chris nail it. He, he kills it on the bowling lane. Strike. He does a little yeah. dance. He just dances with the woman. <laughs> and then yeah. he's like, you like that, huh? I got the next round. Like everyone's celebrating. He's buying beer for everyone. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry to cut in because I did just want to say um, that woman, I mean, she's in the rest of the episode. She's a character named April. She's actually in an earlier episode of Northern Exposure, the same as the same character named April. She's in um, season five, episode 13, Might Makes Right. And she plays like this um, this model that Chris is trying to sculpt. And he's having some problems like trying to find the correct form. He eventually sculpts like a, makes a sculpture of a, uh, a dust mite, but sort of using April as the model. I don't know if you remember that, Charles. I certainly did not. Like she looked familiar, but I didn't know... Like I didn't place her from that previous episode. I did not place her from that at all. Yeah. That, that is so interesting. Yeah. She, she has not acted in, I think she acted in like an indie film before Northern Exposure. And then she did two episodes of Northern Exposure and that's it. I don't think she's similarly to Charmaine Craig hasn't, hasn't acted much since. Mm, okay. Well, that's good. We're pulling some characters back from the past, trying to fill them into the Bible of Northern Exposure. And we see that Chris is, you know, even though he's with her, he can't help but talk to Maggie, too, because he goes over to her and asks her why she's not bowling this year. And it turns out that Ruth Ann has asked her to keep score on the other people, so she is not in the game. She says, you know, I used to be on a team with Joel, but, you know, that ever since then, I've just kind of haven't really wanted to bowl. As you said, Ruth Ann has asked her to keep score. Now... Charles, we were asking ourselves after Joel leaves the show, you know, in the, in the episode, The Quest, will we ever like hear about him again, like in the future tense? Because we've definitely had some mentions to Joel, but it's all past tense. So we still, I, I get, yeah, I don't think we'll ever get any update on what happens with Joel, but I'm, at least I'm, I'm glad they at least mention him still. And it's like, he hasn't been just like completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, anyway, uh, Chris tries to encourage Maggie to get back in the game. Um, and in the next scene, we see, oh, it's actually, a, yeah, it's a pretty short scene, but it's like they're on the school bus, uh, which is carrying the bowling team, the Sicily Sweethearts. Uh, the nearest bowling alley is in Cantwell. So that's why the bus is throughout this episode. And April and Chris are sitting together on the bus and they're talking about, they're arguing about an author named Trollope. And just, you know, talking about literature and this and that. Um, very heady conversation, which seems to be exactly what Chris would like be want to be talking about. But instead, he seems to be a little disengaged in the conversation and he's focused on Maggie uh, sitting on the bus. He's just like looking at the back of her head, but he's just like really mm -hmm. um, focused on Maggie here. Right. Uh, he talks about Trollope, like you mentioned, and 
he's a little bit dismissive of him. He's like, ah, I'm yeah. not really into that. And April says like, oh, well, you know, like Henry James regards him very well. And Chris says, well, if Henry James says so. And I like, I like how he has an opinion on Henry James, not only on that, <laughs> but also enough to use him as a, uh, like a, like a pejorative of sorts. He's like, ah, it's not, you know, who cares what he thinks? He's it's not like even that, that good. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Even though I didn't know who Henry James was and I looked him up and like his freaking Wikipedia thing says that he's considered <laughs> by many to be among the greatest novelists in English language. <laughs> Chris is like, no, that matters not. No. Um, <laughs> Actually, Jay, I want to know. So obviously, you remember a bit about the 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 um, Chris and Maggie uh, romance here. Um, this is actually predates this episode in season six, com- coming before it. It's preceded by. There are some other episodes where it's kind of like hinted at, and they kind of talk about you know they're alone and they're looking for partners. There's a particularly disturbing episode where Chris is sort of like attracted to Maggie and sort of like fetishizes her role as mayor. Cause she's not, I don't know if you realize this Jay, but she's the mayor of Sicily now. Maggie's the mayor of Sicily at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Holling didn't win. No. Well, Holling lost to Edna Hancock. And then after that, Maggie becomes mayor. Edna Hancock was upset, but okay. Okay. But I didn't um, know that. But, uh, but anyway, in that episode, he's like, um, he, he likes that she's in a, role of authority, like, you know, sort of like a, maybe a Dom sort of, uh, fetish. So he fetishizes I that? I don't, I don't it's, remember that. It's a creepy episode. We don't really need to get into it, but I just want <laughs> really what I wanted to know is like, what is your thought? What is your opinion of this romance? Just kind of coming in from not having watched it. Well, I think there were, there were hints of it, uh, like a, a long right. time ago, the episode where the woman comes to town and steals Chris's voice oh, yes. and he has to, uh, according to the rest of the town, both the white and the Native American population, uh, bed the most beautiful woman in the village, mm-hmm. which he thinks is Maggie. And their version of that, I think, was just a kiss or something like that. We don't actually see the that in that kiss. episode. Yeah. But the yeah, that's the name of the episode, The Big Kiss. And I don't remember if that's one of the ones you had me on for or not. Um, it might be. Maybe I think it is. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Lizzie was the guest on that. Oh, it was I remember, the guest on that one. I remember like the first like two seasons. I can like tell you the number, the guest. I can sort of do the, uh, I can't really do the numbers on season three anymore. I used to know like, <laughs> oh yeah, season three, episode eight, it was this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Sorry. <laughs> You're just like, all right. Uh, Lee is so in depth about his podcast. He knows every single, every single second, every single word that was said. That's impressive, Lee. That's impressive. Well, I was just mostly trying to say like the recall of, I used to know right. the episode titles more better okay. on the show. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Okay. So in the big kiss, there's that moment where, Maggie and Chris supposedly yeah. kiss. Uh, we don't see it on screen. Uh, we just see Lipstick. Chris walk he's out of the house and he's it. successfully retrieved his voice. Maggie has given him his voice back. So I think, yes, that most of the show was developing a romance between Maggie and Joel in all that time, that uh, there was a seed there for Chris and that he was a possibility the whole time. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that he was in direct yeah. competition with Joel or even thought that he was in direct competition with Joel. It was like a, a love triangle where one of the points was invisible. We didn't know it existed until, well, now Joel's gone. Something has to balance the Maggie relationship. Oh, Chris is here. So in a way, this whole Chris-Maggie romance has felt, at least for me, forced over the last season because it feels like they're driving to a logical conclusion, an emotional conclusion between those two characters to give someone for Maggie and someone for Chris. Uh, but it still feels like the groundwork was laid back in previous episodes that, oh, there's, there could be something there. 
you know? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, there's a part of me that wonders, like, was this even the right call at all in that, like, Maggie (laughs) needs to be with somebody? Because her whole thing at the beginning of Northern Exposure, her whole thing was that she killed her boyfriends. Whether it was intentional <laughs> or anything like that, yeah. she, she, you know, she believed that she had some supernatural power that caused them to meet their premature end. So then I wondered if they were going to like stick with that and be like, you know, like an empowering thing for her, or if she was going to be like they were going to call back to it and she was going to ignore it and say like I control my own destiny and stuff like that, and then find somebody. They just never really touch upon that aspect of Maggie that I found really interesting. At the end of Northern Exposure, I know they touch upon it throughout the later seasons as we go on, and they even have it a thing with her and Joel. But I, I wonder if they should have ended with that rather than have have her shoehorned with Chris. You mean the the killing her boyfriend thing or the independent woman thing? Uh, it can be wrapped into both. It, it depends on where yeah. the writer wants to take it to. It's like, where yeah. would you like to take this thing? I think it would have been fine if they left Maggie off as an independent woman because they've shown her to be an independent woman in the past. She's She's got her own business. She's a pilot. She's a landlord. And she's the mayor now. So, yeah, she she's doing okay for herself. Does she she's, have to be with a man it. at the end? Does she have to even be in a relationship at the end? Um, Maggie's doing well for herself. I don't think she really needs that emotional relationship at the end. I think the show would have been fine if they just resolved it with, you know, here's Maggie being successful. Yeah, I never thought about, like, how much she's killing it. She's only like 32. Yeah. She's yeah. like around mayor, her age. Mayor of the town, <laughs> owns a theater, Bush pilot, like does like, uh, I think, I don't know if she owns houses, but she's a real estate agent, you know? She's yeah. also a handyman. She's capable. Yeah. She fixes stuff in those houses. She rents the Capras now, that cabin that Joel used to stay yeah. in. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I agree too. It's like, it just feels a little offensive to like, like why would you... Uh, I don't know why they they would. Do you think it was like a cliche at the time where they felt like, oh, we have to pair the characters off. So here you go. I do think that they were like trying to find some bigger like heart or some like dramatic umph. And like romance is definitely huge, especially like in the 90s, like when rom-com still existed, you know, like <laughs> when that was still a thing. Oh man, RIP. But, um, but you know, that for the show itself, even just um, – excusing what was popular at the time, like what was successful in the show, I think was Joel and Maggie, you know, having that sort of romance in there. And they needed, it feels like the show is kind of lacking uh, that sort of chemistry in this final season. So I can understand that they're trying to inject something in there. Uh, You're definitely not going to get it with uh, Phil and um, Michelle because they're just brand new characters. I mean, they would have to be like really stunning new characters for you to just like, gravitate to that as a viewer. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they're just trying, they're just trying to find some dramatic emotional send off maybe. So they're, uh, yeah, everyone loves Chris. Everyone loves Maggie. Why not stick them together? That's what the writers are thinking, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Oh, one thing before I get to the next scene, I just wanted to say that I am a big fan of them going to all of these new places. So mm-hmm. in this episode, we have them going to the bowling alley. We have them on the bus, just, Environments that we've never seen them in before. Yeah. I was really digging it. Big fan. Love it. But anyway, coming on to the next scene, we see that Chris is holding auditions for Maggie's partner. Got a bunch of people coming in, trying out their bowling skills, trying to see if they are up to snuff to be Maggie's partner. 
some of the interview questions he asks, I mean, well, he, he checks like their bowling form and then he has like uh, in, sort of like an oral exam, like interview process where he's like, what's your marriage status? Uh, what's the last book that you read? And the guy answers uh, The Sum of All Fears by Tom Clancy. It's funny. Chris gives like a little bit of a side eye at this. Chris has got to be unimpressed with that. So yeah. unimpressed with that. <laughs> and then he says, do you have any past life experiences or OOBs you want to tell me about? OOBs? Out-of-body occurrences. The guy's <laughs> like, not really. No, I don't want to tell you about my past life experiences. It's not like a question to ask if like he does drugs. <laughs> like, I don't know. Is that a subtle no. way? <laughs> no, it's. I mean, just not a necessarily. Chris, uh, I mean, it's it's just a cr- definitely Chris, a like, Chris type of question. Thing. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's important here. He's he's looking for a new bowling partner for Maggie. But I think what we see in the next scene, it's like that thing where like you have a crush on someone, and so like instead of like ask them out, you like try to set them up with someone else. It's like oh, I'm going to find you a boyfriend. You know, but mm-hmm. it's like more of a. Do you think Chris is still in denial at this point? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, because yeah. I, think, I think he's doing that just because he's denying that he has feelings for Maggie. I think so because by the end of the episode, it's April. We'll get there, but April has to be like, I need you to realize yeah. it, like because I've been seeing it and like you won't. Right, right, right. You won't pick. I, it I mean, either he he sees it, and he's denying it, or he's just deflecting it because he's trying to hang on to his relationship with April, mm. uh, and so he's trying to deflect the attention that he's giving Maggie into, hey, let me else, find somebody yeah. else for her so that I don't have to worry about it or nobody has to accuse me of it. That could also be it too. It's like if if Maggie is not single, then I would stop thinking about it, you know? Right. Um, anyway, so we get a beautiful like exterior night shot in Sicily and Chris walks into the brick and he bumps into this guy, Bob Pickering, who Charles, I don't know if you'll remember, but we did see him at the season five finale, Lovers and Mad Men. He had much different hair. I want to say it was like much frizzier and larger, but he's the archaeology professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And they kind of mention it in this scene. He's like, oh, yeah, it was the guy who um, who was coming in to see uh, Joel's uh, mammoth. Like he found – like mm-hmm. Joel found like a frozen woolly mammoth in ice. But what was it? Like Walt – Walt's a – you know, Joel found it, ran to go get someone to tell – when he came back, it was it disappeared. Just, it was disappeared because Walt <laughs> um, just like took all the meat and like cooked it. Yeah, and Walt froze it. <laughs> yeah, Walt's eating it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like it a concludes. shot of Walt with like a humongous, like unearthly, like size of steak on his plate. He's like eating it with like bell peppers. And <laughs> it's crazy. That. All these people that are coming back in, like April and uh, Bob Pickering, is this reminding me of how like fantastical the episodes were back in the day? Like mammoths (laughs) uh, trying to sketch someone in the new, but uh, having to go with the dust mite. And you compare it to today's (laughs) episode, which is just like arguments of bowling. (laughs) Right. I I do appreciate the callbacks to um, other past minor characters because I think it helps flesh out the world. That's something I have always appreciated about Northern Exposures. They still maintain that. Feels like real, like it's a real thing where yeah. there are consequences of what, I mean, not necessarily with Bob, but like with characters like uh, Cal Ingram. Like whatever happens in that episode, when we see him again, like we see the consequences of uh, stuff like that. Anyway, not to get too bogged down in past episodes. Uh, Bob is here. Um Chris bumps into him and he pulls him over to Maggie's table and um, he's like, hey, Maggie, Bob's, you know, here doing some research and turns out he's actually a bowler. 
you know, I think it'd be great if you guys maybe paired together for our, our league. And, uh, you know, so Chris is doing a little matchmaker here. Maggie pretty, like initially pretty much doesn't really like the idea, uh, but somehow Chris is able to convince them. I don't remember exactly what happens, but you know, it's like, it'll be fun. Like you guys, you know, just give it a shot or something. Yeah. Basically, uh, Bob is saying like, eh, it beats looking for frozen rodents out in the cold. So yeah, yeah I'll join you on this bowling thing. And, uh, we get Chris in the morning. He's live this time, not a, uh, tape delay or whatever. Um, he's, uh, oh, he's giving like a little speech about how the, the origins of bowling, how it started in the church used to be about, you would like throw a stone down the aisle in church and try to knock over a club that represented the devil. Um, and he like looks out the window as he's giving his address here, uh, through the, through the K-Bear glass. And he sees Maggie and Bob walking together, walking into the brick. So still thinking about Maggie. Maybe uh, is there something like to be said about like bowling and like the idea that it started as like knocking over uh, this representation of the devil? Is it like just like a trying to say something about temptation? Maybe I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess like you can give it a deeper reading if you want to, but to me, it just read like Chris is doing something very innocent. He's just reading off the history of bowling. And then what's not so innocent is his gaze toward Maggie yeah. and Bob. Yeah, definitely. There's that implied um, sort of subtext in the, just like in the filmmaking here. Uh, so let's see. Later, Chris is watching Maggie bowl. She's terrible. She gets a cutter ball. <laughs> um, but I guess it's like, you know, she's just dusting off the cobwebs. And he's with April. Chris is with April. And she's like, hey, you want to go get some food, get some uh, euros and stuff? And Chris is like, why don't you go ahead? I'll meet you up. Because uh, Chris wants to go over to Maggie, give her some pointers. You know, it's kind of like, the only way I can describe it is kind of like whenever like you're showing someone how to like uh, shoot pool, you know, you have to get like really close and like kind of like intimate, like right up behind them. And like, no, you want to like hold your arm this way and release the ball there. He's like trying to give her bowling pointers. And, uh, <laughs> and like Bob walks up and it's like super awkward. But uh, Maggie does end up like throwing the ball and knocking a lot of the pins down. Still needs a little bit of work, but, you know, Chris is like, uh, cool, yeah, well, see you later. Like Bob's like, oh, you know, you want to stay? I got like extra onion rings, but, you know, it's just kind of an awkward situation maybe. What is that Patrick Swayze movie where he's like over her shoulder trying to mold the thing? Ghost. Ghost. They actually Ghost. they actually reference it. I forgot to mention that, but Heather was like, <laughs> Do you want to know what my father's favorite film is? Because she's like, oh, he doesn't know anything about movies. Like he gave you, um, he likes your script. He doesn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to tell like a good script if it bit him in the face. His favorite movie is Ghost. <laughs> and Ed is a little disappointed at hearing that too. Isn't that proven Foster? He does know something about script writing. Yeah. He's, he's Ed says he takes good. his notes. Yeah. Ed's yeah. like, I did, I forgot, we didn't even mention that. I forgot, but Ed's like, you know, I, I did end up taking his notes. Like, he, yeah, he's got like some he, notes. he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Wait, why were you thinking? Oh, because of the ghosts. Oh, because like he gets like, intimate. he's over. It's like sculpting. Yeah. He's over her shoulder. He's trying to show her how to do the thing. You can't not think of ghost. Very much a ghost scene, except with bowling. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next time that I've got it in my notes, that's like a significant scene with Chris and Maggie is um, 
you know, they're, they're in the bowling alley. The Sicily sweethearts are seemingly doing pretty well, except for Phil, you know, but it doesn't matter. Cause he's, you know, he's always been bad. Um, and then Chris is just like mega critical of Bob. He should also, I keep forgetting this, but like he can just focus on his and April's game. Cause that's all it is. It's doubles. So, but mm-hmm. he keeps looking over to Bob and Maggie's game and really critical of Bob, even when he gets a spare, even when Bob is doing well, Chris gets angry. He says he's lucky. Like, ah, oh, I can't believe that. And um, Chris also, like, I think it's like sort of a close up. Well, he sees he sees Maggie and Bob giving each other a high five, and then the camera shows like a close up of their hands kind of locking together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's just kind of more. He's really invested in this Maggie thing right now when he should be focused on his uh, doubles game. Right. And in the very next scene, April calls him out on that. April says, look, I know what's happening. You haven't been able to keep your eyes off of her since we got into here. And I can't keep bowling with someone who's not there. I don't want to do this with you. I think you should just go be with Maggie. Chris is like, hey, all right. Like, never occurred to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think it 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 never occurred to him. I I I think he's just finally admitting admitting to himself. It's more about April being like, you need to admit it to yourself. Like, I'm cool. Like, people, people, you know, break up sometimes. People move on sometimes. That's fine. Like, I get it. But you need to, like, address this with yourself. You don't recognize right, it. Right, right. I'm being hypercritical. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you think in a way that Chris is just sort of, like, asking for permission? Not asking, but waiting for permission to make a move? Yeah, I think that could be part of it. I don't know. I think that could have been something very interesting if Chris, uh, in an alternate universe, if Chris was saying, they're like, I want to be, like, a really good boyfriend, and I'm with you right now. So, no, I shouldn't do that. And then April was like, no, like you know let's talk about it let's see what, like what the definition of a good boyfriend is you wouldn't even be one if you want to be with another person that would have been like kind of interesting i guess it would have been interesting i don't know if it would work well with the actions chris has taken earlier in the episode already because he's right you know yeah. obviously he's still trying to uh get closer to maggie so if he was still wanting to work it out with april and be faithful to her and be a good boyfriend then his actions say otherwise right right <laughs> well Chris finally takes the cue and goes over to Maggie while she's trying to get a bowling ball. And Chris puts his hand over her when like sort of, you know, hands meeting each other over that bowling ball. Maggie telekinetically can like, she, she knows what he's thinking. She's like, Oh, okay. I see what's happening here. Like we're going to be together. He like takes the pencil from Bob's hand and Bob like well, Bob like hands it to him. So yeah. obviously Bob senses something so, too, right? <laughs> I was like, I wrote this down. I'm not really sure what happens here. I think you said it perfectly, Charles. It's kind of like a telepathic like, but also it's like I immediately thought this when I watched it. I'm like, how do you write that scene without it being weird? Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. So <laughs> there's no dialogue. They just like it just happens. And then what actually is a little, I think is a little weird. Uh you know, so so Chris takes over Bob's spot, crosses out Bob's name, and writes his own on the scorecard. Um, it's a pretty cool shot because, like, Maggie looks back over to Chris, and then she looks, she turns around and looks at the like scoreboard, which is like, I guess it's like a tiny little projector that projects like the uh, scorecard onto the screen above, mm-hmm. and we can see that um, Bob's name is scratched off, and Chris's name is like he's writing his name there. Wouldn't they get disqualified for this? Like, is that? 
Oh yeah, hundred percent rules. Hundred <laughs> percent. But then we learned that the Sicily sweethearts win by three <laughs> points, I think. But that's like they cheated, man. Like, <laughs> well, maybe maybe the tournament organizers already recognized that and yeah. canceled out Chris and Maggie's score. <laughs> yeah, that's you true. know, let's that's just good. benefit of that. Let's assume that they still won despite Chris and Maggie being disqualified. <laughs> yeah, because Michelle really is that good. Because honestly. Michelle is that good yeah. at bowling. She can't, right. Yeah, <laughs> and that brings us to the final scene of the episode that we kept touching on, which is the bus ride home, and we get a shot of April and Bob. They're talking to each other. They're both jilted. They both come together due to that fact, and maybe there's even a future for them together for yeah. those two side characters. <laughs> then we get to Phil and Michelle, very chilly response from doing both of them, and Phil looks over to Shelly and Holling, who are the exact opposite. They seem to be loving, understanding. Shelly's leaning on Holling's shoulders. They both fall asleep. And then finally, at the very back of the bus, we have Chris and Maggie in a very... Like, it's actually a wonderful shot. I was very impressed by it. So we see them together. The camera comes in. The dolly's in toward them. And then we see them from the back. Mm -hmm. And we see them framed from the bus window right there. It's very cinematic. And I think it's very important that it's cinematic beyond just looking very pretty. Because in the beginning of the episode, we see cinema. Literally. We see it framed. We see mm -hmm. the movie and now at the end of the episode, we see them framed in like a box right there, very cinematic. And it, you know, it kind of yeah. gives credit to the idea that there is like a Hollywood ending. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like the, I like the the way you bookended it there. Hmm. Hmm. And they're um, yeah, it's just like a they're just kind of happy to be together. They have some lines here, but it doesn't really mean anything. Like Chris is like, huh? Did you say something? Maggie says no. Chris says, thought you said something. And they just kind of chuckle and they lock arms together. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a very contented, you know, uh, little little romance. Reminds me of like very, very like high school romance kind of vibe of them sitting at the back of the bus. I'm going to dive into analysis of, uh, of, of, again, how it feels kind of forced. Yes. Um, <laughs> this whole episode, we've seen the Maggie-Chris relationship develop only from Chris's perspective. True. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen it from Maggie's perspective at all. We don't know what Maggie's feeling. We don't know if she's into it, if she's stealing glasses of him, if she even has those types of thoughts in her mind, what her opinions about being paired up with Bob all of a sudden are, and why Chris is doing that in the first place. We don't get any of that perspective, and I think that's a huge loss in finding out, you know, how does Maggie feel about this? I mean, it's yeah. sort of, you know, at the end, oh, hey, look, she's reciprocating a little bit. It's obvious. She liked him the whole time. Surprise. But... I don't really feel like that was developed enough that it's believable. And that's, to me, that's why it feels kind of forced. Like, you know, we get Chris's perspective. He's trying. Uh, he's he's going through his own little emotional relationship thing with April and with doing his thing, the thing with Bob or whatever. But we don't see Maggie develop those feelings at all. I mean, maybe it happens in later episodes or earlier episodes or whatever. It just, it just feels forced in this one even the scene in the bus at the end and yes i agree with you charles it is cinematic i like how they showed the shot of them from behind and outside the bus that was cool but him like lifting his arm up and putting her arm around his just feels kind of forced like she's just kind of rolling over and accepting it yeah as we've established already she's an independent woman she's accomplished a lot she's killing it she's doing really well for herself why is maggie the type of character who would respond to chris's advances that way 
Yeah, I would say even in previous episodes, um, I can think of one at least. There's probably probably in in the previous episodes where Chris is sort of falling in love with Maggie. It is very much that. It's like Chris falling in love with Maggie. We don't really get to see Maggie's like. I mean, she definitely like smirks and and smiles and invites it. Like she likes the idea that maybe Chris is talking about romance and stuff with her. Like there's a episode earlier where I'm thinking of uh, Charles. It's the one uh, lucky people. I think. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, I think I've decided like, I'm not meant to fly solo. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think people are meant to be together. And like Maggie, I think she literally doesn't say anything. Like she doesn't have a response. She just smiles. So like, it's all kind of coming from Chris's side. I, I think that's a good point you bring up Jay, because I'm just trying to think of like in the past, we always saw uh, Joel and Maggie fighting, but we always saw what was going on with each of them. Like we understood why Joel was angry at Maggie and how he was one-sided in his anger. And we also saw why Maggie was angry at Joel and how she had she's only seeing it from one side as well. But at least we got to feel a little more from Maggie's side. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to add on to what you two have said, it, you're right. Maggie has very little agency, it feels, in this relationship between her and Chris. And particularly in this episode, like you were saying, Jay, we see it from Chris's perspective and it almost feels like an ambush of sorts. Mm, <laughs> it does. Yeah, it doesn't. It, because we sympathize with Chris, we know Chris. We know that ultimately he he has good intentions. We we don't view this entire thing in a in a very negative light, but like from an outsider's perspective, it it's really is weird. <laughs> like we really should be seeing more reactions from Maggie and seeing how she's processing this, what she likes about Chris. We're really just seeing it from one side. I want to step even further back now and just talk about the title of the episode, Balls. I mean, obviously, mm. it's referencing the bowling, yep. right? right? But I mean, could you just call this episode like, I don't know, like 710 Split or like Strike or something like bowling related? If, if, why do, if why, the word <laughs> balls was yeah. truly meant to represent only bowling, <laughs> then I think, yes, Lee, that you could easily call this episode 710 Split and move on. But I don't think that's what the title means. Yeah, what do you, what do you think... Uh, Balls. Well, my interpretation yeah. from a, a masculine point of view, <laughs> if we're sticking to that interpretation, is that it refers to the courage and boldness of the characters. Mm. And if we want to tie that theme together, we see, at least in two of the plot lines, Chris is being bold yeah, um, and eventually admitting what he wants to himself and then going after it and getting it, regardless of the lack of Maggie's perspective, which I, I do – Wish there was more of that. And then on the Ed plot line, we see Ed is getting bold and courageous and standing up for himself and fighting for what he believes in, at least at the moment, before he realizes, eh, maybe that's not what I need. Um, either way, there's there's boldness shown in those two plot lines. In the Phil and Michelle plot line, I'm having trouble searching for something in this moment to, to identify as bold. Mm. I mean, maybe you could say Michelle's boldness for standing up for what she believes uh, in the relationship and kind of forcing the issue by um, depriving Phil of the relationship for a little while. That's that's kind of bold. Outside of that, I don't really see anything. But yeah, I think the title, Balls, can refer to um, that courageous and, and boldness. Not that that necessarily has to be a masculine thing only, but I think in this sense that the title 
uh, kind of sets it up to refer to it that way. And so one other thing I forgot to mention about this episode, when I was talking about the air date, April 6th, uh, the last episode that would have aired, uh, Little Italy, was aired on March 15th, 1995. Now, this is a weekly show, typically. So, yeah, there's kind of a big gap So you're saying there were three weeks between those episodes. Yeah, and if you go before that, there was another pretty large gap between um, February 15th episode, Lucky People, and then The Graduate was March 8th. So it was like another, like almost, obviously, I'm not sure what was going on, but, uh, you know, they had... They, they were not, they were no longer a weekly show. Uh, there was like some gaps happening here. Maybe, maybe there were like big events or something. I don't know that like okay. cross-programmed it. Hmm. Also something what, to What mention, day of the week was it coming on? So that's, I was going to say also something to mention is that in this season, uh, sort of uh, kind of earlier in the season, I can't remember what episode it is. I'm trying to find it. I think it might've been The Great Mushroom, but the show always used to air on Mondays. And then mm-hmm. uh, during this season, it switched to Wednesdays. Okay. I just looked at the calendar back to 1995. Yeah. yeah. 15th is a Wednesday. 8th of March is a Wednesday. 15th of March is a Wednesday. April 6th. April, April 5th or April 6th? April 6th. April 6th is a Thursday. Hmm. It could be wrong uh, on Wikipedia. I mean, I wouldn't put that past uh, I'm not trying to call out to suggest that, but <laughs> no. maybe, maybe if, it, if it is right, does that mean the show moved from Wednesday to Thursday? Well, then the next episode that we are going to watch, Charles, it's called Bus Stop. It's the 20th episode in season six. That aired on April 24th. So it's still not, not a week a again. Oh, it's on Monday. Oh my God. They're really like, they're all so over they're the place. So they're all over the place. If I'm looking at the calendar, right? April 1995, the 24th is a Monday. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I mean, I could, I could be wrong with these. I mean, this is just Wikipedia. So I don't know. I need to find what the source is here. But yeah, that's kind of, they're usually pretty accurate with those air hmm. dates. Something else I do want to mention is that this episode, Balls, um, pretty low Nielsen rating. Um, probably the lowest in the season so far. That doesn't mean that this was like a bad episode and no one watched it. It could just mean the way it was programmed. You know, like, you know, there hasn't been a new episode of Northern Exposure in a couple weeks. Uh, so like people are forgetting people about it. People forgot about it. People moved on to other things. Maybe there was some other TV event going on. Mm-hmm. And then the next episode that we're going to watch, it shoots up in the ratings. Uh a little bit. So I don't know. People are getting back into it. I really don't know how to read that, but you said it was April 6th, April 6th, 1995. Again, that's weird. That, that was a Thursday. You said that was a Thursday. Let's see. That's strange. Let's see. I wonder if there was anything else. Yeah. What's, came what's on. going on? Like when was the OJ? <laughs> Cause we brought that up. Charles. When was no. the, we did bring that up. I was thinking, Let's I was see, like Simpson. If this was an even year, I would have been like, maybe it's the Olympics. Like maybe something's going on with that. Because that does interfere with it, with programming. But right. no, it's 1995. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The OJ, you know, police chase was in 94, June of 94. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't that. What network was this on? CBS. CBS. Maybe this website I'm looking at is unreliable, but it doesn't say Northern Exposure for April the 6th on CBS. I was just looking at the CBS programming that day. Would not put it past Wikipedia to get some things wrong like that. Possible. What about April 5th? Um, I just clicked on that. It doesn't show that either. The show doesn't exist. (laughs) That's why it's on. (laughs) Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. It neglects to list what the programming is between 4 and 11.35 p.m. So maybe it's just in there and it's just not shown. And I'm only reading. Oh, here we go. Northern Exposure, Balls. April the 5th, that would make 1995. Sense. That would make sense. 
CBS. Um, and then let's see if I go back to April the 6th. No, no, it doesn't show that. Could you check um, uh, although, April 24th? Hold on. Go ahead. April what? 24th. Uh, just for the audience, I'm using a website called tvtango.com. I have no history with this website. I've never discovered it before Googling a few minutes ago. Uh, you said April 24th? Mm-hmm. April 24th, 1995, CBS, The Nanny, Dave's World, Murphy Brown, and Sybil. Nothing on Northern Exposure? Well, hold on. That was a Monday, I said, right? So yeah. what if I go to Wednesday? Wednesday. That would be April the 26th. April the 26th. Northern Exposure bus stop All right. at 10 p.m. Let's get Mr. Wikipedia on the phone and tell him he needs to update this. Uh, yeah, or, I mean, maybe Mr. TV Tango is wrong, you know, benefit of the no, doubt. No, I, I would believe but, uh, that it came on Wednesdays, yeah. TV Maze does say April 6th, but, like, again, they might be sourcing the information from Wikipedia from the itself, same, which is, yeah, yeah. from the same place. Right. Mm. Wrong. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Uh, Jay, we're so glad that we got you back in season yeah, six. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It's, it's, it's been... Yeah. It's been fun. It's been a privilege and honor for you guys to have me come on to your uh, to your podcast and and talk about a show that I feel Lee was part of your origin story for uh, definitely for what you went into in in college with filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Ed Chigliak somehow was an influence on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Certainly was for sure. Yeah, we're glad to have you back, and it was really good to hear because, like, obviously you're a huge fan of the show, but it's been a while since you've seen it, so I wanted yeah. your perspective on season six because I think we have very similar feelings because we watched season six together that one time, mm-hmm. you know? So, mm-hmm. um, But, yeah, so next week, Charles, as I said, bus stop. It would have aired April 26th probably in 1995. Um, do you have any guests, Charles, because you haven't watched this yet? What is what could this episode be about? It's called Bus Stop, but the the word bus has two S's. That's interesting. Yeah, I still don't know what that could mean. Huh. Well, bus stops are really good for uh symbols. They're like train tracks. You, you see them a lot in television shows, actually, like final episodes. Some of them are like a lot of them are actually in, in bus stops right there. Uh I, I want to guess that it's like a transitory thing. Um somebody is shifting to another direction or something like that. And it does literally feature a bus stop. I want to say there, I know that there is one because, uh, in, in Sicily. Yeah. 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 Because Maurice's cousin, nephew. Do you oh, remember? Yeah. I forgot you or something. Yeah. Some sort of relative to him. Yeah. He does come by bus. So, you know, yeah, people use that bus every once in a while. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be my guess for right there. All right. Well, we're going to figure that out next week, Charles. I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music is remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jay for being our guest. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.